0: It's June 1st, 2023, this is Rook. Episode 266 of Rook. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Hello to you from Toronto. Hello to you from Canada. Salam Dustana Aziz. Duroopash I Hope you're doing well. Wherever you are tuning in from around the world, we are on our ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. It's a big show. Big show today, kids. Big show.
1: Very big show. Excited to hear all these stories.
0: Well, oh, okay. From me? No. Oh, from, from our the guests. guests. Right, yes. <laughs> that is Smart Pega here in the studio. Savvy Rohan behind the board. Well, hello, sir. sir. We said hello, sir, at the same time. Go ahead.
2: We're going to uh, pull our hairs something.
1: Pull our yeah. hairs? But you say what? the same
2: thing at the same time?
1: Uh, what's he talking about? It's a about? superstitious oh. thing. Yeah. I think it's an Iranian thing, actually. I guess where so you pull each other's hair if you say something at the same time it's like saying jinx but yeah. okay yeah. I've
0: never heard of this yeah. so it then is. when you say something at the same time then you have to walk over to to the person and pull their hair yeah and to
2: avoid jinxing each
0: other I don't know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Persians eh yeah. it's so weird with the superset of voodoo you know
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'd say voodoo but the, you know
0: the mystical uh, yeah. you know crazy witch uh, alright Joshua Keon Alampur, mm-hmm. like a Joshua Keon Alampur. Let me tell you. A, let me tell you a little story about this uh, this fellow. He is uh, in his early twenties. Mm-hmm. He is uh, kind of a piano virtuoso. I don't know what else to call him. I mm-hmm. mean, you watch him play the piano. He's like a. He's like the best. He's like uh, I was going to say Glenn Gould, but you probably don't know who that is. I don't. <laughs> a Canadian icon. Okay. One of the great the Gould variations. Okay. No <laughs> crickets. <laughs> How do I work under these conditions, Savi? Have you ever heard of Glenn Gould? No. No, okay, of course not.
2: <laughs> Richard Kleiderman. What? Richard Kleiderman. I, I can't
0: understand <laughs> what he's saying. You, is it
1: it's a name, really? I guess? I don't know who oh, this is. But Richard
2: Kleiderman? You don't know him?
0: Richard
1: Kleiderman?
0: Kleiderman? Kleiderman? Yeah. Why does that sound familiar?
2: Uh, he's the most famous piano player in Iran. Yeah. Oh. That people know.
1: But he's not iranian the, the right no, no
2: no no richard
0: kleiderman is in iran, but, but <laughs> in iran it's like
2: what's it's he, like wh- modern talking <laughs> <laughs> you go there and you ask for a piano player everybody says first of all back kleiderman. off the
0: microphone a little bit you got you're popping all over the place yeah. <laughs> richard Kleiderman. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all the people who grew up in iran are like yeah yeah richard clinton what's it why, why they don't know now, I've never heard that name before. But really? now that you put him in the same category as modern talking, yeah. uh, you've done I'm, him a great thinking, disservice because yeah. it obviously means he's a terrible performer <laughs> that no one in the world is interested in except for your audience.
1: I was going to say, uh, you're going to have a preconceived notion right then and there. Does he
0: sound like modern talking?
1: No,
2: oh, but, okay. but he's like pop piano player.
0: Yeah. Richard, Richard Kleiderman. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what, the, I, can we get the last five minutes back somehow? <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, Glenn, forget it. Joshua Keon Alampur is an amazing piano player. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, he's self-taught. Wow! And he is so, uh, and he composes, mm-hmm. and he has become this internet sensation, like this one of those TikTok right. stars, right? It was with millions of views of him playing these little compositions like a kind of like a vampire. You know, he's got this whole getup. And he puts he's got a trench coat and he does these mm-hmm. and he's great. He's amazing. He is of Iranian and Chinese extraction. Interesting. And he lives in the the States. Mm-hmm. So uh he's gonna be joining us for a feature interview. You don't seem that interested. I, I am. I'm waiting for okay. it more. I'm, I'm Why are listening. you so silent?
1: Well, I'm waiting for you to finish telling me all well, about that. I, <laughs> I, I, I did. I
0: said he's going to be joining us.
1: Yeah, I, I said and I'm you, really excited. The, I thought you would to... grunt
0: or say, cool, or and that's great.
1: <laughs> no, uh, I'm actually really excited because I have zero musical talent. Uh-huh. But if there was ever an instrument that I would love to play, it would be piano. You
0: know who's great at piano? Richard Joshua. Kleiderman. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'll look him up. <laughs> I
0: feel really bad like I feel like but honestly I music's been my thing for decades I don't know Richard Kleiderman that's shocking unless he did he play with someone did like was Richard no. Kleiderman a guest player in the in the Beach Boys for a while or no, something he was always solo he was a solo only piano that's the thing Richard Kleiderman
2: interesting I, you know what? Oh, you're looking him
1: up right I'm, now I'm gonna you, look yeah? him up right
0: now because I want to know if he's just like an, a, a guy who Iranians know or Kleiderman
1: I would love oh, to hear.
0: Oh, Whoa. Richard. Cl- I mean, we, we C L C- A Y. Okay. Richard Klederman. Klederman. Okay. Yeah, He's a French guy. Yeah, I, I've heard of. Yeah, he's a See? French, French pianist from, like, oh, fifty uh. years ago. <laughs> 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 Richard Clyderman So, so it's Kleiderman. Yeah, it's Claderman. Got it. Yeah, okay. yeah. What well, you need on well, it's, <laughs> what would it be in French anyway? Richard Kleiderman. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, Richard clay you don't have the talent of Richard Clyderman or Clayderman. I, I yeah.
1: certainly do not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, Joshua Kiana Alampur. So he's become this, like I say, this internet mm-hmm. sensation. Uh, I, I and, what a cool and he's 22 years old. Wow. He's played the Lincoln Center.
1: At 22.
0: Self-taught. This is what Incredible. I'm trying to say to you, and you're not interested. Well,
1: no, I, I'm beyond interested. Well, you're just interested. looking, just you're staring waiting. off
0: into space. <laughs> I'm thinking of <laughs> Richard Kleiderman. to
1: finish here.
0: <laughs> All right. So he joins us coming up. First up. And then Shirin Amoni-Ozari. Mm-hmm. Now, she's been on the show a couple times. We mm-hmm. love Shirin. Yes. She's a uh, an award-winning psychologist located in the UK. Mm-hmm. But she also has her second book she's just published. In fact, she's about to launch it in Sweden, which is related to the book because Mm -hmm. the book is about her being a Persian immigrant who grew up in Sweden and it's a little autobiographical tale of her being 12 years old. Mm -hmm. A very charming book and also um, I think a very, uh, a book that a lot of us will relate to as immigrants, uh, certainly Iranian immigrants around the world. It's um, her story of being 12 years old and the clash of cultures of being thrown into this western country country, in her case Sweden, mm-hmm. and trying to find her way. Um and uh so it's uh, the book is called Once Upon a, Once Upon a Time in Uppsala. Uppsala is the former capital, capital yeah. of Sweden. Oh I did didn't you know, know that? that yeah yeah oh, look at you. I did not know Richard that. Richard Kleiderman. Yeah. yeah. I might start calling you Richard Kleiderman. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, you knew that. You knew Uppsala was the it's like the capital in the sixteenth yeah, century. I, it's been a while
2: yeah I had an old friend in Uppsala. Oh. And because of that I, I knew Look Uppsala. York, you. Very Actually Uppsala
0: is in, uh it's not that far from Stockholm. Right. It's like kind of a suburb of, of mm-hmm. Stockholm, yeah. but uh, so Shirin Amoni Ozari joins us. Then um, later in the show after these interviews I want to talk about academic suppression in Iran. Now we know especially during the uprising, during the women life freedom movement mm-hmm. over the last uh, 8 or 9 months. We know of course professors have been detained, students have yes. been imprisoned, people have been executed, gas attacks, toxic gas attacks on schoolgirls, on schools across Iran. There's a new paper, a new academic paper, um written by a few people, including the scientist Dr. Nima taif shukr mm-hmm. Sorry, taif shukr. These
1: last Easy names. Easy for
0: <laughs> him to say. Uh Dr. Nima Kleiderman. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah. easier to pronounce. Yeah, Dr. Nima Taefeshuk, and he is um he's a he's a scientist. He's a researcher. He's located in Ottawa, mm-hmm. Canada. Uh, he's going to join us. He's he's the co-author of this new academic paper talking about academic suppression. So, so the sum of all of these parts of the crackdown on people who dissent or think critically or anything like that mm-hmm. is to. Is, is for there no longer to be, they argue in this paper, I would say, um, that there is no longer the fundamental right to education um, that is enshrined in the Universal uh, Charter of Human Rights in mm-hmm. the United Nations. Because depending on what gender you are and what you believe and if you're dissent, whatever, you're, you're not going to get the education you should, mm-hmm. uh, that you deserve. Um, it's an interesting paper. Dr. Nima Taef if Will join us.
1: That sounds very interesting and definitely something we've seen historically with the Islamic Republic cracking mm-hmm. down on um, academics and education yeah. and, and all of that. Yeah, so. yeah.
0: And, so, and some of it is incredibly sad. Mm-hmm. And but this this kind of uh, academic factual analysis of this is is important. And uh, you came alive. Now you're all interested. <laughs> well, that was not for <laughs> Joshua Kian alampur
1: I was who equally at the
0: age of twenty two <laughs> has played the Lincoln Center. I tell you.
1: <laughs> equally excited about that but you know this, this academic Clyder, paper he played
0: uh, Richard richard he was playing lincoln center long <laughs> before oh yes what
1: i was going to say that that joshua's story definitely is interesting but this right. academic type of paper is right up my alley yes so. what, about, what about
0: being an immigrant in uh, sweden
1: that too. There you go. Actually, I had read um, read Shirin's other book, um, "Once Upon a Time in Tehran," I believe it's oh. called, um, and that one really hit home for me because it, it talks about her or the character's relationship with her grandmother and her grandmother's story. So that was really there you go. Very big show. Yeah, big
0: show coming up. It is the beginning of June. Happy Pride.
1: Happy Pride. Happy Pride
0: to you, Thank Sabi you. Roham. Uh, lots of festivities yes. throughout the, the the month of uh, June. Uh, Pride happens in a big way here in Toronto. Mm-hmm. I think it's. Uh, it happens in a lot of places in June, I think.
1: I think so. Some At least in that. North America, I think Pride Month is, is June. June. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Um, also, uh, this weekend, I'm going on a hot date. Ooh. Yes. For your birthday? No, my birthday is next, next week. Next weekend. <laughs> this, week, uh, this week, I'm going to a concert. Uh huh. Guess which concert I'm going to. I don't know. What? How many Iranian icons are there?
1: Is Gugush uh, this, Gugush we- is this oh, weekend? Gugush is this weekend. is this weekend, So I'm yes. going to see Gugush. Wow! With
0: my mother, I'm taking <laughs> oh. my mom.
1: That is a very hot day. Yeah, it's an incredible day. My mom is the best. <laughs> exactly. Who else
0: am I going to take the gugush? Great day. You know, she she's coming with me. We're gonna uh, and of course we know some people who are performing with uh, uh, gugush, Massacosemi, mm-hmm. who is a dear friend, former Torontonian in L.A., uh, an amazing cello player. She's been touring with gugush, and um, we're going to get her on the show coming up. So.
1: I'm actually sad I'm missing that concert. Why
0: are you missing it?
1: I'm, I'm going to be in Ottawa this weekend. So, hmm. well, tomorrow and then the rest of the oh Will weekend. you
0: be at another concert? In no, no. Perhaps Richard Kleiderman <laughs> performing? In, if,
1: uh, if he's playing, I'll check him out. What about
0: Kleiderman? Rishad? Maybe. Maybe. Uh, so, Gugush, uh, yeah, I'm excited. You know, uh, I'll tell you something. Um, obviously familiar with Gugush mm-hmm. since I was a little kid, even though I was never that immersed in the Persian pop. But mm-hmm. uh, how could you not know Gugush and growing up in a Persian family? I've uh, never seen her live.
1: Really? No. Uh,
0: I've all these friends, you know, Bob Camini, mean, all these people wow. who were, played with her for years. I've never been to a Gugush concert. You're in for a treat. I, I am. Even my a, mom's seen her a few times. Yeah. But, you know. Uh, I've been yeah. to
1: a few of her concerts. She's She's got this incredible stage presence, I of think. Of course.
0: Yeah. Of course. She's one of the only people we have that's one name. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <All right? laughs> this is true.
0: Gugush. You know, it's like Cher, Madonna. Yeah. Abby, Darush, Gugush. <laughs> it's a short list. All right. Uh we're going to get to our guests in a moment and the roundup in just a second but first let me tell you about something you should know. This episode of Rook is brought to you with the support of blinds factory. You like blinds, don't you Pega? I do. You appreciate some good blinds? Absolutely. All right. Well, better than the tired old school curtains, blinds where it's at and you your stop is blinds factory of these are made in canada mm-hmm. made in toronto in fact oh. with an iranian connection inventive designs options that have been carefully considered trend advisors that curate collections so blinds factory guarantees that you'll find the perfect blind shape or drapery to match your style and needs so you you see it you, you say you got a window in your house right mm-hmm. and you say i want blinds for yep. them Who do you go to? I
1: know where to go now. Where do you go? Blinds Blinds Factory. Blinds (laughs) Factory.
0: That's right. Blinds Factory guarantees that you'll find the perfect blind. Each treatment is crafted to the exact dimensions of your windows, then professionally installed for a perfect fit. Best of all, they are passionate about the details, and that shows in everything they do. Find Blinds Factory at blindsfactory.ca or on Instagram at blindsfactory.ca blindsfactory.ca Thank you so much for being supporters of this program. We appreciate it. If you're looking for blinds out there or anything like that, and you're in Canada or beyond, I guess. Yeah. Probably order them from somewhere else, right?
1: I guess you can ship blinds, right?
0: blindsfactory.ca
1: (laughs) Alright.
0: I wonder if Richard Kleiderman ever uh, used the He's probably an amazing guy. He's probably the greatest, best interview ever. And now he's not going to come on the show because
1: because we've now made fun of his why? name. Why? <laughs> I didn't know
0: he was. Except I knew maybe Clayderman. But uh, yeah. All right, let's get to the Rook Roundup um, and uh, let's get into it here. What do you What do you have for us, Pega?
1: couple of interesting things um i want to start off with news of south korea potentially releasing funds to the islamic republic have you have you heard of this so what does that mean so there's been um talks with um seoul and between seoul and washington actually uh in regards to releasing about seven billion dollars worth of frozen assets or or funds Mm. um to the islamic republic because these are funds that um I guess they were they owe to Tehran to Iran um, because of the imports of oil prior to the imposition of the U.S. sanctions back in May 2019. So now they're they're sitting at the table, so to speak, and having these conversations to try to re-strengthen ties and to allow for the release of these funds. Now there's been a lot of commentary on this. Wait.
0: Uh, sorry, is this not a weird time to be releasing funds back to the Islamic Republic? Absolutely, and that, and okay. that's
1: part of I think um, some of the the pushback that you know um, Korea South Korea has been receiving, and not only South Korea, the United States as well, because let's not forget that they're also a vital player in this actually taking place. Now there. I mean, like anything else, there's two sides to this. There is some argument about, you know, if the funds are released, they're not going to be directly given to the Islamic Republic because they're going to be (coughs) allocated for specific things. So, for example, they would be used to pay UN dues, purchase um, humanitarian equipment. So things like vaccines um, go towards humanitarian needs, things like that. That's the one side. The other side, exactly what you said. You know, considering what's been happening in Iran the last eight, nine months, the atrocities, this regime being the way they are. Why so now? Who's
0: arguing the first side?
1: Um. Well. The regime. South Korea, oh. the U.S., and the regime, but of s- course. South
0: Korea is somehow now helping the. I mean, overtly. That. Why? I, I. don't get well, it.
1: Well, actually, you. Uh, it's surprising, and I didn't know this, but South Korea was one of um, Iran's biggest crude oil buyers in Asia. So that's why this is now, this is such a big big number and and such a big deal. Now, the other thing Mm. is that this is also, the reason I was saying that, you know, let's not forget the US involvement here is that there's also talks between South Korea and the US and the support from Seoul for Joe Biden's 2024 US presidential election. So this whole thing- The South Koreans
0: are on team Biden? Apparently. Weird.
1: Apparently they are. So, I mean, it's just the timing of this- Like overtly? overtly it huh. seems yeah right. um and also again going back to timing there's been all this conversation about the release of hostages mm. um hostages with dual citizenship things like that so all of it is just very very suspicious
0: all right um yeah that's a uh, th- that's somewhat shocking actually very they, shocking you know, uh, i mean three months ago south korea would be crucified by the international community exactly. for doing something like this this is a testament to how um, international outrage for now has seems to have died down mm-hmm. that uh, that that countries can get away with releasing billions of dollars to the Islamic Republic. To the Islamic Republic.
1: Republic, yeah, exactly.
0: Okay, so what else have you got?
1: Um, next I want to talk about two, well, one is a video and one's more of an image that's gone viral. So the first one is um, there was an image of an Iranian model at Cannes, the film festival, um, and her dress oh, yeah. made a lot of noise. So this is um, an Iranian model, bor- Iranian-born model by the name of Mahlaqad Jabari. I don't know if I'm saying her name correctly, but... Very
0: famous model, right? Mahlaqad. Mahla See, yeah. I knew I'd get very that Very popular wrong. <laughs> person. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So she wore a dress um, at one of the, I guess, opening festivals at Cannes, and her dress was really, really interesting. It was actually designed by an Iranian designer, an Iranian fashion designer by the name of Gila Saver. And so her dress was this black gown but where her neck, I guess, is, or the neckline, was in the shape of a noose. Yes. And on the back of her dress, she had a statement written, stop executions. And so she wore this dress to um, really call attention to the wrongful executions that have been recently carried out by the Islamic Republic. But there have been so many different messages that we've heard in regards to her dress and so many different Polarized reactions. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I was really taken aback by the fact that, you know, there were people who were saying that you know why is she wearing this dress for me it was almost like well why not she's got this platform mm. she's wearing this dress she's using you know and op- she's taking an opportunity to bring attention to this why not but there's been a lot of um a lot of comments saying that you know it was in bad taste that she was glamorizing executions
0: it's disrespectful somehow to yeah. those who've been executed or who are terrorized in iran you're mm-hmm. on a glamorous red carpet um but i as well uh I'm, my tendency would be to applaud her, to right. say, um, you know, here's someone. I mean, this is the kind of the problem with, I was going to say our community, but it's sort of the problem with social media. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, nobody can do anything right. Exactly. And so here's a person taking an opportunity to make her red carpet appearance in a high-profile film festival event um, to use that opportunity to actually say something or try and say something. And she gets attacked for it as opposed to just doing nothing. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And I mean, it certainly made, you know, it make, makes a statement. It's got people talking about it. So I guess in that sense, it's been uh, effective. It is, there is a there is a, a, a macabre kind of, you know, weird twist to somebody who's on a glamorous red carpet, you know, at, at the, the height of elite uh, gathering, you know, throwing a bone to people who are on death row in Iran. But, that's the nature of the world, right? Yeah,
1: but I mean, I mean, if you look back a couple months ago, we were saying, why aren't people using their platforms to bring Often, awareness yeah, to, yeah. to the, the issues in Iran? Yeah. Why aren't we you know, individuals who are high profile? But,
0: but if I, to be fair to those who've been critical of it, it isn't, why did you say something? I mean, uh, Nicola Ansari put "Women, Life, Freedom" on her chest, you know, and, right. uh, and, and nobody said that that was a bad thing to do. It was the it was the nature of the design that you know is putting a noose. But I I think it's a good thing. I mean, I think it's an important one that it was done. I, I think know.
1: I think where it's where, un- are
0: you, where are you at, Savvy Rohan? Huh?
2: Um, I'm I'm not in the category of attacking her per se, but but to me that was so good designed that it's like. Uh, is it's too glamorous to me so i didn't like it in that sense if, hmm. if if she just put a news on her neck or like nicole just wrote something with hand i think that was more oh, that's interesting uh yeah more useful i guess and and then she could she could talk about it like nicole was saying that every single person that asked me why you did that i told them why and educate them I think education is better than just showing
1: to be fair on the back of her dress she also had it embroidered and it had said stop executions and so I think that along with the this image of the noose around her neck definitely sparked conversations and I'm, i mean i don't know we haven't heard reports of this or anything but i would imagine that if anyone asked her if this was her intent that she'd have those yeah. conversations i hope she'll come
0: on the show yeah i'd like to yeah. talk to her about it
1: but one other thing i wanted to mention is that you know this is particularly important to do this at can because like we talked about i think yeah. it was last week you know um, any sort of political statement or any awareness brought on humanitarian crises or anything like that is strongly frowned upon at Cannes. So for yeah. her to do this is actually making an even bigger statement.
0: Yeah. But okay. Curious uh, to hear what people think of this. I mean, yeah. send, uh, send us your notes, send us your letters. Info at rookmedia.com. I'll read something if you have something very... Uh, if you're passionate one way or another mm-hmm. about the new stress that was uh, used at Cannes. What else you got?
1: Next thing is a viral video. Um, this one I think a lot of people have seen and I've definitely seen a lot of response to it. And this was the video of the Ukrainian athlete no. who refused to Not shake shaking the hand of the- Hand Iranian, of the Iranian yeah. athlete, yeah. So this was at the World Bench Press Championships in South Africa. Um, There were, uh, well, there were three individuals who were on the podium, but one was um, a Ukrainian powerlifter and one was an Iranian powerlifter. And the Ukrainian won first place. And so, you know, they're standing up on the podium and and this Iranian um, powerlifter by the name of Amirizom Mesfurush, he goes to shake the hand of the Ukrainian athlete. And he turns around and doesn't give him his hand. And so this this individual, the athlete, the Iranian athlete attempts again. So for a second time Mm. and again, the Ukrainian athlete just, you know, turns his kind of turns his shoulders the other way and and ignores him. And then you can actually visibly see in the video the Iranian athlete kind of shrugs. And as you know, you can see this confusion on his face and he's thinking what's going on. So there's been a lot...
0: And then you know what happens?
1: What happens next? You don't really. No, I don't. You
0: don't know. If you watch the full video, then the Iranian... The the, the Ukrainian guy leaves the podium. Mm -hmm. The Iranian athlete says something uh, rude. Really? uh, As the guy's leaving, says, yeah, like I'll... um, Shit on you or something like that, no and way. Uh, to which the the handler looks at the Iranian guy and he says he wouldn't shake my hand. He says it's some Persian. You can hear it, yeah.
1: Oh wow, I yeah, didn't see that part. Flow, I saw. Yeah. I guess I saw a condensed yes, clip. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah.
0: But yeah. Interesting. So so the reaction to this has been interesting, hasn't it?
1: It has been. There's there's so many. Um, varying comments, I guess. There's individuals who are saying, you know, this is blatant racism, and and how could this Ukrainian um, powerlifter not shake the hand of the Iranian athlete? Yeah, at first athlete?
0: glance, it's galling. It's like, what, you know, you, the, you're, the you're on the po- yeah. you're you're on the podium, you're not going to shake the guy's hand. But then you go, okay, what's the what's actually going on here, and the what's the geopolitics exactly. of this? I don't know. Exactly. Yeah,
1: I, so some people are saying, you know, this is actually a great move by the Ukrainian athlete because it's making people look into it a little bit more and see that you know iran is supporting russia and with the war with between ukraine and russia that's why he decided to do this to bring awareness and doesn't want to shake the hand of someone who's complicit in that and all of that that's one side of things the other the other side of things is that you know this is blatant racism there's no sportsmanship and within sports and things like that there shouldn't be any place for this kind of thing and there has to be a distinction between the athletes and the government there's a third side
0: there's a third side that uh, lauds the that applauds the Ukrainian for not shaking the hand of the Iranian uh, because the Iranian athlete is a representative of the Islamic well, Republic. Well, that, that's exactly that's it. the Masi al position, right? Yeah, and so, so
1: that's what I was actually going to say is that there's been a couple of people who are bigger names out there who have kind of given their opinion on this. So um, Chelsea Hart, who's been you know a big advocate for everything that's been going comedian, on the comedian and you were on the last couple of months she came out and posted on twitter and you know referred to this as racism and and was saying that you know how could the ukrainian athlete do this
0: do better yeah, do
1: yeah. better exactly and then i didn't know but you mentioned massy alina i guess she was also in the camp of you know it's good that he didn't because the athlete yeah, she was supportive
0: of the uh, ukrainian athlete not shaking the hand of mm-hmm. the Iranian athlete so there's definitely uh, it's interesting that the further we get into this this period of this uprising you know everything's disputed right like exactly. every, every look. Like, I mean look at the things we're talking about whether it's uh, the dress on, on the can red carpet or this this video of the two athletes I mean there's there's this wide spectrum of opinion mm-hmm. uh, which isn't wrong necessarily it's good to have different opinions but there really doesn't seem to be any unity of, uh, of thought all. around any of this stuff <laughs> Um, what, what did you think of that? The Ukrainian athlete not shaking the um, uh, Iranian athlete's hand. I'm,
2: I'm in, in the
1: middle
2: <laughs> with all this. I, I think he could shake hand and probably say something in support of Iranian people. So maybe that was the best move to do. Mm. Yeah.
0: The thing is, the thing that I don't, I'm not convinced that the Ukrainian athlete, all due respect to the winning Ukrainian athlete, Ukraine, clearly a great bench presser or whatever. Power lifter, he is, power yeah. <laughs> lifter. Uh, but I, I'm not convinced that he has this grand political plan that, you know, I'm uh-huh. doing this because of the, mm-hmm. you know, students at Sharif University who were attacked by the Basij. And, you know, I mean, I, you know, I think he's like, oh, the Iranians are bad guys or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And coming on the heels of, I mean, you were sitting here a week ago saying, Zelensky made a statement exactly. that you found offensive because he was equating the people of Iran with the regime mm-hmm. so you put all that in together and you kind of go huh what's going on with the our Ukrainian brothers and sisters who we were supporting you know I, I see that uh, you know how we would take umbrage at at the handshake not happening. Yeah. Um, on the on the other hand, I mean, we don't even know this. I, I don't know the athlete well enough. Well enough, if mm-hmm. this Iranian athlete is a is a staunchly pro Khamenei, <laughs> you know, athlete who runs around with a, you know, a photo of the supreme leader on his chest, then you know. Uh, yeah maybe we wouldn't be as excited about his you know shaking hands with the guy right?
1: Mm-hmm. actually what I wanted to mention is for me when I first saw this video it wasn't so much about these individual athletes it was just a collective going back to what happened last week with Zelensky's um, speech and the conversations that we had about that it just it saddened me again because you know six seven months ago when we were out on the streets protesting and when social media was blowing up with images of support and, and all that for Iranians in Iran fighting this current revolution, there, were so mu- there was so much love between Iranians and Ukrainians because they felt so connected yeah. given that they were both experiencing, you know, yeah. all these atrocities. I still
0: think there is. I just think it's I think sad there that is, this is two weeks in a row now that we're yeah. talking about some tension between Iranians. I, just,
1: Iran. I think the shift is a little bit sad, that's for right. sure.
0: Uh, Anything else in the roundup?
1: That's it for the roundup. But, you know, there is an event I want to talk about really quickly. There is a contemporary Iranian art exhibition happening in Atlanta, Georgia. Okay. Um, It's going to take place uh, June 3rd through to the 6th. It's happening at Free Market Gallery, and the name of the exhibition is *De La Vare*. Nice. Um, the exhibition is going to be dedicated to the brave women and men leading the woman life freedom revolution in Iran, and will benefit the End Gender Apartheid Campaign. So, for uh-huh. anyone in Atlanta or, Atlanta, or going to Atlanta, there's a reason. Check it out. June
0: third till sixth. Why? You, you, why isn't? Why aren't these events that you talk about part of the roundup?
1: I mean, I guess well, they are. Well, what, why did you say that's <laughs> the
0: end of the roundup? Now I'm going to say an event.
1: I don't know. the The roundup to me is so like news central. <laughs>
0: well, this is news. <laughs> You're talking about an Arctic. So, like, like,
1: I guess. Yeah. Part of the roundup. because
0: well, then we're going to have a separate section. It's like, all right, we're done with the roundup. Now let's go to the events section.
1: Roundup including events. We'll yeah, I think
0: the roundup can include. I think the event could just be part of the roundup. Done. Uh, anything else, Pega? <laughs> yeah, there's an event. <laughs> mm. See Richard Clyderman never had these he, issues. He would have never done this. He he never had these issues. It was all roundup right. for him. I never has these issues. I think he's still around. <laughs> Poor <laughs> guy. I have to Google him <laughs> we, again. We've now well, made yeah. fun of his name not and killed him off. Uh, no, he's uh, no, he's fine. He's, yeah. he's not God. even. sixty nine years old. Uh, Richard Clyderman.
2: Is he coming to Toronto? A
0: ballad, uh, ballad, pour Adeline. is one of his. Uh, Oh, oh, oh my he's God. He's coming. No, hang on a second. What is the first thing that comes up on Google when you correctly, not Claderman, but put Richard Claterman in? It's no why kidding. did Richard Claterman change his name?
1: Oh, Ooh, what so was let his me, name? Let me look at this. <laughs> Maybe it was uh, Claderman.
2: No, he's Iranian.
0: Philippe Paget. Philippe Paget's name was changed to Richard Claterman. What? This is this is <laughs> this is amazing after half an hour of talking about <laughs> oh this. Oh my uh, gosh. was changed to Richard Claterman. He adopted his great grandmother's last name oh. to avoid mispronunciation of his real name outside of France. <laughs> which didn't <laughs> which help with the audience. <laughs> you call him Clyderman Oh my god, that so is So he's actually Philippe Paget.
2: But
1: he thought Paget would be hard to pronounce.
0: He has sold uh, an astonishing 22 million copies. Now, uh, the, uh, it was the, his main thing is Ballade pour uh, Adeline. But he also now the second thing that comes up. By the way, we got like guests waiting to come on this show <laughs> that we booked for weeks. The second thing that comes up is is Richard Clayderman a good pianist? I'm not kidding. This is what comes up on Google. So let let me, this, t- let me click on that he is popular in asia oh interesting mostly and is noted by the guinness book of world records as being the most successful pianist in the world there you go richard Claterman. Yeah, um do you want more does richard Clayderman have a wife <laughs> <laughs> so um, joshua
2: has a way to get to richard Clayderman.
0: i don't know if i would call richard Claterman the great i mean Rachmaninoff, like when <laughs> like when we dismissing, like you know, I don't know, uh, is Richard Clayderman really the greatest? And he
2: sold more copies than, than any so modern have guy. modern talking.
0: That's yes. my honestly.
1: Know. The only thing that right now is still blowing my mind is the fact that this person changed his name and yes. we were actually mispronouncing yes. his name. Yes, well, that, that I mean that I Hilarious. would never
0: do this to Pierre Paget. Of course. And I'm only Philippe Paget. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> like, what was his name? I think it was Philippe <laughs> I would never I, Paget. I would never it. disrespect Philippe Paget. But Richard Cleiderman slash Whole other story. Whole other story. Uh we're coming to you on rookmedia.com. It's there that you can link to all of our platforms. We're on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Instagram, CastBox. If you'd like to see some visuals with Rook, switch over to YouTube right now. You can watch the full interviews with Satin, Bijan Motazavi, uh, Dr. K, Maziar Falahi, some of the guests we've had in studio recently. You can watch them all in uh, color, a video uh, on YouTube right now. And if you like your YouTube descriptions of bulletins in English and Persian, check us out on Telegram. We're Savvy Roham. Does the translations into Persian. Mm -hmm. So if there's any issues you have with them, if the translations are wrong. (laughs) You can blame him. (laughs) You know where to go. Uh, And you can become a supporter of Rook, a Rook member, which we really appreciate by going to our website, rookmedia.com. It's very simple, rookmedia.com. Just press the support us button. It leads you to our Patreon page uh, where you can become a Rook member at the bronze, silver, or gold level. Um, It's a few dollars a month and it really helps us do what we do. If you're a regular listener or viewer or consumer of our Rook content, we would love you to become a Rook member. Um, Or if you're not even, if you're irregular, but you want to be part of things, we really appreciate it. Thank you to... Uh, Amy or Ami Madoni who is has just become a patron at the bronze level we really appreciate it thank you Ami Madoni thank you Pega thank you thank you Roham do we have thank our you, first guest yeah we do all right Let's my go. feature feature guest today first guest is an American pianist with an Iranian father and a Chinese mother Joshua Keon Olam is a talented self-taught classical composer an internet star followed by hundreds of thousands of people around the world on his social media platforms. Take a listen to this. A taste of raindrop waltz number one in B minor and the talented fingers of our guest today, Joshua Kion Olampur. By the way, that's a piece that has over 2.6 million streams on Spotify alone. And it's a piece that he composed himself. Joshua was born in New Jersey his family moved to Jinan China when he was 10 years old he taught himself to play the piano with a cheap 61 key keyboard and online piano lessons on YouTube and a few years later Joshua ended up at UC Berkeley as a music student. That is, of course, uh, one of the most prestigious schools in the United States. These days, Joshua is focusing on expanding his compositions to film scores while he teaches music to students from different parts of the globe and plays gigs at little unheard of concert halls like the Lincoln Center despite being only 22 years old. Oh, and he's also amassed about 900,000 followers on TikTok alone, let alone his other social media platforms right now. Joshua Keon Alampur joins me from New York. Hello, sir.
3: Hello. hello. Wow. Thank you for the introduction. That's, that's very kind. <laughs> it's a pleasure.
0: <laughs> I, I mean, I don't even know where to start with you. First of all, you're 22 years old now. How does it feel to be really old?
3: it feels it feels kind of weird i mean not nothing really has changed much about my personality it's just that i have more bills now and uh slightly more responsibilities but it's nice i like the freedom i like the freedom
0: you oh what kind of freedom do you have now
3: well you know just in my own apartment and uh you know i get to go grocery shopping Um, i love costco like it's just so much fun just like it's uh, so, yeah, that that's something like, you know, adult stuff that I, I've never really delved in. Right. Before. But,
0: you know, you can't be the child prodigy anymore. You know, once you become an adult, <laughs> people will have uh, more expectations of you.
3: Yeah. Yeah, that's that's true. That's true. That's very true.
0: I love that piece that we just played. And that is not just you playing, but that's something you composed. When did you write that?
3: um I wrote that, I want to say 2019. Um, Some classical composers like Chopin, they would publish like a set of etudes or a set of certain type of works, and it would be like one for each key, and there's 24 different keys. Um, And I loved rainy weather, and uh, I just started composing waltz after waltz for uh, whenever it rained. And thankfully, like it was New Jersey, so it rained quite a bit at some times, and I ended up composing 24 different range of waltzes, one for each key. Um, I never ended up publishing all 24. I only published this one because I was very self-conscious. And it was like my earlier work, which, uh, you know, when you're an artist, right, when you look back at your earlier stuff, you kind of cringe a little bit. Like, I can't believe I did that. But this is one of the few where I was like, I actually kind of like this one. So I'm going to publish this one. So it was fully, it was originally a set of 24 um, short piano waltz is dedicated to the rain.
0: I love that your earlier work is from when you were a teenager two years ago. <laughs> your early period <laughs> that you've now graduated from. I, the thing is, is that you're extremely prolific as a writer. Like you have this thing where you regularly—I don't know if you're still doing it every day—but you regularly post something new that you've written on TikTok, right? Like you, you do these little compositions. Um, is that because this comes uh, composing becomes uh, very easily to you uh, or or is it something that you really work at and you slavishly want to put out something that you you write with regularity?
3: Wow, yeah. well um it's 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 cool that you mentioned that you re- <laughs> yeah, i'm I'm really impressed you really did your research. um but yeah, I, I do compose a lot um i I don't post everything that I compose, so on average maybe like three to four things a day um i don't really find myself like forcing myself to like churn something out for social media um the only times i really feel like that is if it, if i have like a homework assignment due or something like that <laughs> and then it's like okay you really got to write this um but uh yeah i think that um for the most part it's just like i'm just hearing stuff um my compositional method is, is kind of weird. I don't really, I usually don't really compose at the piano or at my desk when I have like software open. It's more so like if I'm like walking to class or if I'm cooking or something, I'll hear something in my head and I'll rearrange the parts in my head. And so when I'm at the piano or I'm at my computer, right, with like software and all the instru- virtual instruments there, it's more so I'm just dictating what I already uh, uh, organized. You
0: retain it in your head or do you have a little recorder that you sing it into or something or, or is this just like in your head?
3: Uh, A lot of it is in my head, but sometimes um, I look like even when I'm scrolling down social media, I'll just like go through like a random piece, like four months ago, I have no recollection like, oh, I can't believe I did that. So sometimes I do have like some videos on my on my phone where uh, and I can't sing, but you know, just me like humming like motives and stuff like that. But um, for the most part, it's like retained, I I would say
0: might seem like a strange question to most people listening. But I think musicians, especially those who write songs would understand it, which is that if you write something that you really like don't you feel like you don't want to give it give it away on (laughs) on tiktok right away i mean are there things that you write that you sort of retain and go no that's going to be for this album that i'm going to put out and debut at the lincoln center or something or do you just are you this open with your material that you just want to share
3: that's a good question i do have some works that i've completed um like a while ago, and I still haven't published them because I want it to be part of a larger set. So I do have some that are like that, but um, um, what I found really satisfying, and this is how I got into like film scores, uh, is like the obsession generally with like a lot of film scores, the obsession with like light motifs. So if you're if you're watching like Pirates of the Caribbean or, or or something like that, right, it's like Davy Jones's theme, right? And like anytime Davy Jones is like there or has something to do with him, right, you kind of hear like sprinkles of like his motive or like the harmonic progression to that right and i thought that was really cool and then um i'm i'm trying to do this thing over the course of my life so like leitmotifs they usually develop over the course of a film right depending on what happens throughout the story you know
0: explain um, what a leitmotif is for for people listening
3: Sure. A light motif is like it's like a motive or a short melody that's associated with a character or place, and it recurs throughout the film, right? So like Darth Vader is like, bum, 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 um. And it was interesting. I was uh, re-watching some of the Star Wars stuff, and then I never really paid attention to the score. Obviously, the score is very iconic. But then you start to notice that that little motive is like snuck in all these different places whenever something has to do remotely with Darth Vader. Sure. So I like that idea, and I thought to myself, well, everyone's life is like their own personal, uh, it's their own personal movie, and so um, what I wanted to do was uh, have my own leitmotifs, motifs, you know, motives that are associated with me, and have them develop over the course of my lifetime. So, and it's a long answer to to your rather simple question which i but- I
0: love what you're saying i mean that uh, and and by the way those film scores the greatest film scores in my mind are, are the ones that have an iconic leitmotif that you that you associate with a character or so you know that you like um laura's theme in in dr jivago you know more like mm. da, da, ba, 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 ba. or there's that Lawrence of arabia they're, they're they're sort of similar he wrote both of them but but that thing you every time he's thinking about Laura, you hear that song and you know and, and it becomes the this uh, audio cue for, for remembering the film for the rest of your life. And you're right. You can write those if you have the ability, like you do. Um, it's like wearing a favorite shirt. You can write your own leitmotif that you that you will live by, right?
3: Yeah, so I have a couple of things. That's why I'm I'm kind of open with with putting stuff out a lot, is because I think it's satisfying when You know, you look back at some of my older works, you could find themes that I still use to this day. At least I find that satisfying with other composers when I realize, oh, wow, like Beethoven's fifth is also found in his Appassionata Sonata in the coda. It's like, it's like I recognize that he's been obsessing over this theme for a while. So um,
0: when do you know if you've gotten if you've found your um, iconic riff or your one piece that represents you?
3: uh, That's a good question. I uh, it took me some some time. I don't have like one. I have a couple and um, I was writing a lot of music and I still write a lot of music, like in my like earlier days, I was writing a lot. And um, I do cringe at a lot of my earlier stuff, but some of the stuff that I don't cringe, I'm like, that survives for a reason. I like that for a reason. And so it's those motives that, that kind of survives where I could look back on it and I could be like, I still like the way that sounds. Those are the ones usually that, that I keep and I extrapolate some of that material and then use it for future compositions.
0: Okay. So let me bring the audience in on something because everything about you so far that we've heard would be impressive enough. You're 21 years old. You write this stuff. It's on Spotify. You compose, you play, et cetera. But one would then assume that you've started doing this stuff. You're like Wayne Gretzky, who was on the ice at the age of three or something, you know, you're the Lionel Messi who's kicking a ball when he's a baby. And so he's, so I, we would just assume, okay, you had a piano when you were two years old and, and that's all you've done for 21 years and that's how you became who you are. Uh, the story is, and I I say this with some incredulity because I can't believe this is actually the truth. The story is that you actually started playing piano when you were 16. Is that true?
3: Yeah, it was October 10, uh, 2017. So I was 16 years old. That, that's what that's when I started.
0: So all of this, I mean, you played the fucking Lincoln Center. This has all happened <laughs> in, in five years.
3: Uh, well, yeah, Lincoln Center was was early. That was like in 20. 19 ish something like that all
0: right that was after two years so (laughs) so so tell us the story of I mean look you're obviously some kind of genius but but (laughs) but, I mean how who can do this so so how did the piano thing how did you discover that the piano and and then music was something that you have this kind of facility for
3: um well, I, I'd say my introduction was was uh, a little unorthodox. So I wasn't really a musical child. I wanted to, like, at some point, I wanted to like build roller coasters, and I wanted to be a doctor. Then I realized, you know, I like faint at blood, so I can't do that. And then, um, actually, at one point, I wanted to be a boxer, like like a fighter. And then uh, I sparred once, and the guy jabbed me once. I just quit. I'm like, I'm not. It's not for me. <laughs> so, um, but it was it was so. Um, I was born in New Jersey, but my uh, parents were entrepreneurs for a little bit, and so we lived in China. And um in China, it's very common to see, you know, people from a very young age, to just very, very talented musicians. Like uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's like Moonlight Sonata, for example, the third movement, which is a very, it's a pretty difficult, very popular classical piece. That's just like a baseline for everyone. And if right. you don't play the piano, then you must play the violin or something else. It's like <laughs> everyone plays yeah, something. By the way, else.
0: we had a we had a classical um, pianist, uh, an incredible. Uh, um, a woman named Shahriar Nostrati who toured China uh, on a concert tour, and she she's German uh, uh, Iranian background as well, like you, um, and she uh, she said the most interesting thing about the crowds in China was that there were young people. Uh, there to see a classical concert of her playing the piano it was like it was like a cold play concert or something that you were I mean not cold play at this point or you know but but some you know uh, uh, I don't know who's a uh, doja cat concert or something like that where there's like a bunch of teenagers because piano and classical music is still considered in vogue for for younger people right would that be true in China
3: I would say so I would say so yeah many many Chinese um kids you know you learn from a very young age and it's a part of their uh uh routine usually but um yeah it originally started because my dad um my dad always loved uh javad marfi the, the Iranian composer um golden dreams that's his favorite piece told me stories in the past you know when he was younger he wanted to learn but his family couldn't afford so um, he was like you know what i want to start doing it so he bought like this this keyboard right and it was about 100 rmb so 100 yuan that's about 16 ish dollars
0: hang on a second are you in um china still at this point or do you have yeah to-
3: still no. still in china still in you're china. in china so
0: so j- let me just set the stage here you're uh, a kid born in america with a persian dad and a chinese mom yeah. Move to China when you're around 10 years old, right?
3: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, can I, can, can I just backtrack a little and, and can you just tell us a little bit about, first of all, that's, you know, different. I mean, that's That can be very jarring for uh, a kid to suddenly move to the other side of the world and completely different language culture, et cetera. How was the transition for you?
3: It was, it was, it was, a, it was interesting. Uh, so yeah, we moved, my dad was a pharmacist, uh, and um he built up an independent pharmacy very successfully and uh, and then he sold it for a couple million dollars. And this was in New Jersey, and then he flew to California to learn how to make pizza, like <laughs> Italian pizza from this guy, Italian guy, and it's it's VPN, which I know we we think now it is like the internet security thing, but it's also Vera Pizza Napolitano. So he <laughs> went there for a little bit, um, learned how to make brick oven pizza from this guy, and then flew back. And the next week we were like we were on the plane to China. <laughs> so it was when I was in the fourth grade. Uh, and oh your, your
0: family is it, there needs to be documentaries made about <laughs> <laughs> forget it's, you your dad i mean this okay keep going
3: yeah well it was just because he had like this dream of of you know he loved cooking he loved culinary arts. and how and like, long
0: I, ago how long ago did he come from iran
3: like, uh he, is he quite
0: he, iranian or
3: he left iran when he was 16 okay. uh and then he went he stayed in germany for a little bit and then and then came to the u.s okay um yeah so you wanted to open an Italian restaurant franchise, then uh, and my mom's Chinese, and they said that, you know, okay, well, let's go through with this idea. We have the capital, but uh, there's too many good Italian places in the U.S. There's too much competition. Let's go to China. And so we went there. <laughs> and because, um,
0: because that makes sense. Uh, let's move to – I mean, I guess with your mom, maybe that's uh, – but that, yeah, that yeah, seemed yeah. like a stretch. I mean, uh, okay, let's go – what about Canada or somewhere closer by? No, yeah, let's go yeah, start we, the – The pizza business in China. Yeah,
3: it was uh, it was very different and like um, very interesting, totally, totally different things like, you know, just like the way they do some things. Like, for example, we had to like import an oven. Our oven was like Sergilliano Forni, which was directly imported from Italy. And, uh, they held it at customs and we we're like, oh no, what do we do? And my mom's like, you got to show up with like 12 iPads and take them all to dinner. I'm like, why is like You got to bribe them. Like, that's the way things are done. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. So we showed up with like 12, like at the time it was like the first generation iPad, you know, which was like new at the time. Mm-hmm. And then boom, our oven came in like the next week we had our oven and it was like the same thing know. for all the other equipment. <laughs> okay. Very, very different, you know, things um
0: sorry who were you giving the ipads to some customs official or something
3: yeah just the customs officers you know we had to do it for a bunch of different equipment it was was very very different you know um i attended public school there there was no international school um i don't know if there is now but do
0: you speak mandarin or do you i mean now you do probably but when you were 10 years old did you
3: not really no i'm fluent in it now like i can read and write and i can i can uh speak some like G90 slang. <laughs> wow. Uh, what
0: about Persian? Can you speak Persian?
3: Ah, uh, No, I wish I could. I, the only Persian <laughs> words I know are like salam, chilla kebab, juja kebab, sohan, sangak. You know, I'm a very uh, hungry. That's it's right. Busy- that's <laughs> important
0: things, you know, the, important- <laughs> so were you um, upset at your parents that at the age of 10, I mean, you probably have friends and you have a whole life built in Jersey and they're, and they're like, okay, we're going to go to China. How did you feel about that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I was, I was upset, you know, but um, I will say holistically, the whole China experience, I'm very, very grateful for that, because it, it taught me a lot of life lessons, I feel like money can't buy. So it taught me, you know, the value of money, you know, you never, I don't take any of this for, granted. I have a roof over my head, I have heat, you know, I can feed myself, those are, you know, I'm grateful for all that, because there have been many moments where, you know, you had to sleep hungry, or um, you had nothing, you know, you, you had nothing to your name. So, I'm very, holistically, I'm very grateful for everything that went on there. But certainly in the short term, I was very frustrated. I was like, why do I have to say bye to my friends? You know, very short notice. <laughs>
0: right, right. Well, I'm going to bring you back to the being 16 years old and the the little keyboard. But at this point, when you were, you know, in your early teens, say, and living in China, were you a particularly creative kid? I mean, would, would it have been obvious that you're going to be somebody who's going to be composing things and and, and playing music?
3: I'm going to be honest. I don't think so. I mean, I'm pretty crap at drawing and I've tried it so many times because I love art. And like every single time I try, it's just like it looks like a second grader. Did it. But um, no, I don't I don't think so. I wasn't a musical kid. I didn't really do anything super creative uh, when I was like 13, 14 and stuff. I had a lot of like I was very upset at like what happened. So I was just working out a lot and uh, that's why I wanted to be a boxer. At that
0: okay. Time. Josh, you're intensely smart. So I would assume that you were you would do well at school, like you were probably very successful at whatever you were doing, right? Except for the boxing. <laughs> yeah. <I>
3: was, well, <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. I I was it was um I was always a good student even for like elementary school I was, I was a good student. But my education history was kind of interrupted by all this moving. So I didn't finish the fourth grade. I never attended the fifth or the sixth. Right. I attended the seventh grade in China, public schools. And, um, you know, I wasn't fluent at the time and I could like make conversation. But when you're reading like Chinese literature as an American, like reading like Shakespeare, like even Americans struggle with that. Right. It was very difficult. And so, you know, I would always fail like Chinese class and stuff like that. You know, um, I was the best in English class. You know, sometimes I even teach the class because <laughs> it's very easy right, right. an English class in China. Um, and then. I attended a little bit of the eighth grade then i dropped out and then ninth grade because i we moved back to the us um august 20 2016 and we stayed there for a little bit august 20 2016 to february 17 2017 we lived in texas for a little bit and um i started ninth grade there i was doing great it was even though well, I can say it now because it doesn't matter. But we forged all my like transcripts and everything because like I had no history. So, uh... by the way,
0: what happened to the pizza business in China? Is oh, that
3: yeah? Is that so still, is that
0: still going or is is there are there franchises all over China? I mean, I don't know. I want to know the end of the story. What?
3: So at the end of it, it didn't it didn't work out. Um, okay. We had at some points it was doing well. Um, we started in like 2011 and then by like late 2016, it was just like, okay, we can't do it anymore. And there's a couple of things we didn't take into account. You know, the Chinese taste palette is totally different. Like if you go to a, a Starbucks in China, right? You're going to see like red bean cake. You don't see that in the U.S.
0: Sorry, I don't mean to. Uh, no, I mean, you're good. You're good. <laughs> but, but you're. this wasn't something your parents thought about before the idea of the the pizza no. chain in China? I mean.
3: <laughs> no, it, we didn't. And and but I will say though, like, Like, if we had opened in, like, and I know I sound biased because, like, I'm their son. Sure. But, like, if we would have opened in, like, someplace in Italy, it was, like, everything was imported. So, the margins Uh were, like, razor thin. Like, the steak was from Australia. Um, The tomato, San Marzano tomato, everything was Italy, Italy, right? It was just, like, um, like, it would have been amazing if it was, like, an pizza was
0: sublime. The, the... The, audience, the audience for the pizza, not so much.
3: Yeah, no, we we would shred parmesan, and they're not used to that. They're just like, "Why is there fingernails in my pasta? We're like, this is not fingernails. This is parmesan, and uh, very different." You know, they add sugar to like pasta. They 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 eat pasta with ketchup. Like, that's something that doesn't. <laughs> it's very. We're, this is this is here. where
0: this is where you learn to grate the cheese for your fettuccine alfredo, that <laughs> I've seen you make.
3: <laughs> oh God, uh, that's, that's funny that you you know that. Video. Um, but yeah, so it didn't, we, there were some points we were doing good. You know, it, it was, it was, it would really fluctuate. You know, we would do like 50, 60 K a day, but like the margins were razor or thin and we, we opened the second location, but also, so obviously there's that fault, but there was like some, some unorthodox like corruption that we, we couldn't really hmm. take into account. So like everything's biased towards foreigners. We had some investors and uh, they didn't, uh, they weren't really playing by the game.
0: Just out of curiosity, did China ever feel like home to you? I mean, after that's a you,
3: weird there, thing. Yeah. It's for a weird few years,
0: or did you, or did you always feel like you were squatting and you're eventually going to, I mean, you, regardless of your family would have to come back to the West or the United States or something?
3: That's a really, yeah, that, that's a, that's a good question. Cause like in the beginning, obviously everyone's homesick because, you know, I'm going to say I was a pretty spoiled, I would say I was a, I was kind of a spoiled kid when I was younger. You know, we lived in like this big mansion, you know cars and everything and very successful thing like really big chandelier you know just like all these things right really big american dream fulfilled right and then now we're living i don't even know and this is gonna sound really stupid i didn't know apartments were a thing i thought everyone had a big house because you know we lived in the rich neighborhood and we had all of a sudden we're living in like a tiny apartment and uh uh you know it's a it's a tiny apartment and in one of the rooms doesn't even have heat in the winter. So we, we called that the freezer, <laughs> and that's where we put my mom and my younger brother. We're like, yeah, you guys go there whatever they annoy us. No, nah, I'm kidding. But like, um yeah, it was very I, I it was not used to it. Um after some time, and I, I always like we would fantasize, and the thing is when you're really homesick for a long time, you start fantasizing about the the place you originally were right. Mm-hmm. And then sometime in like 2012 or something, our original mansion got flooded and it was like destroyed. So I don't know, something happened. Uh, the bank took it. So it was basically, it's gone. It's gone forever. Right. Um,
0: the place so in, Jer- like, in New Jersey, you mean?
3: Yeah. The place in New Jersey. And so we're like, okay, so we really got to come to terms with that. But still, you know, we're all always fantasizing. The goal was come to China, make your millions in a few years, then come back and buy hmm. an even bigger home.
0: <laughs> okay. right. and,
3: um but that it that didn't work out
0: you sound quite integrated into the family plans and business and all of that it's it's not it was it doesn't sound like the kind of family structure where the the parents are in charge and and don't let the kids in on you know everything that's that's happening i mean you're 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 actually talking about the margins and everything.
3: no no, we saw everything, which is i mean in the short term was really something that I really didn't want to see but um now that I'm older, I look back at that, you know, I, I think it builds a lot of character. Those are experiences you can't buy, you know, like um, it's a, it's a very different, they do things very, very differently. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, yeah, learning from that was,
0: Did you feel, um did you struggle with being different in, in when you were in China? I mean, given that you're a kid who's from America and you have a Persian dad, and I mean, did, did any of that, By the way, they didn't know he
3: was Persian. He said he was Italian. (laughs) He said his mom was from Sicily. And then one time we had this actual Italian guy come into our restaurant. and uh, Because that's the way that we advertise. I mean, I could say this now, but (laughs) I know it's really bad.
0: The authentic Italian uh, lineage. Yeah. yeah, I see.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And then one time we had this Italian guy come in. And he's actually Italian. He starts asking my dad questions like, "Oh, where are your parents from?" And he's like, "Uh, you know, the South Side. You know, the- <laughs> like, oh shit. They've- oh, I'm allowed to curse. I don't- <laughs> yeah
0: not um, curse. Yeah. Okay,
3: <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm sorry. Please, I interrupted you. You. Were- no,
0: no, no. Uh, that that was my 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 question was whether you felt. Left out, or whether you felt racially strange, or any any of that, when you were uh, in China. I, p- I partly asked because we had a guest on it with an Iranian woman who had gone from. I mean, this is a little different from you, obviously, but who had gone by herself from Iran to uh, China to, as a student, uh, you know, in post secondary school in, hmm. in China, and and then ended up living in Ghana and different places of the world. But her feeling was that there was a lot of racism that she felt very um it was very clear that she wouldn't have the sort of privileges that others would have who were chinese in china that was her sort of report on our show but i'm curious how it was for you
3: yeah well it's a very interesting interesting thing so like china is is racist but um i experienced the other side of of racism not the negative side and it was just because I do have like lighter skin and it's, it's, it's really messed up, but it's kind of built into like their beauty standards. Like if you have lighter skin, that's more like all the makeup products. are like whitening cream and stuff right, Right. And so like in school and everybody's checked, like these are public schools. Right. And Jinan is not Beijing. Beijing is different. You know, one of these big cities, they, they deal with foreigners more often. Jinan, you know, if you spot a foreigner, it's like, like once in every blue moon, like everyone kind of knew each other (laughs) because there's not a lot of them. And so like in the school, like, like all the girls would come up to me, everyone trying to be my friend, and like I just got so used. To it. I was like, "Wow!" Okay, and, like they just came, like you know, they never seen like a nose this big. Like <laughs> it was, it was a very different experience, and like I was very. Not used to it. when I came back to the U.S. No one gave a shit about me. I was like, ah, oh, come uh, on, man. Where's all yeah, the like, right. people? Literally stop us on the street, take photos. Like it's really weird, and we're not celebrities. It's just like you're a white person. Let me let me take a right, photo. Right, with you. right, right. It's very, very different. I
0: I often tell tell the I've I've told it before on the on the show a, a funny anecdote about how I always hated my big Persian nose, and uh you know through my whole life until I got to Vietnam and realized that they they find it really attractive. And so that, <laughs> Asia, they're like pointing at it, you know, and and. and, and <laughs> Uh, in an aspirational way i was like i'm living in the wrong part of the world yeah clearly uh, so it sounds like it it served you in in
3: uh in yeah China. it, was, it yeah. was a huge confidence booster it was like i mean i didn't deserve it because like i, I yeah, yeah just but um in other in other ways it was negative and it's not so much like because i was iranian or anything it was more so just foreigner you know um so anytime you get into any trouble you know um, the court, there's no like due process. It's the courts are always gonna favor the Chinese person, right? So, like mm. that's just the way it is. Um, and uh, it was it was and this is one of the reasons why our, our business failed. We had investors, and you know, when you invest in something, you're taking a gamble, you're taking a risk, right? Mm. They invested in our into our business and then numbers weren't doing as good, right? So they they lost some of their investment, right? And then they wanted out, but they wanted out what they originally put in, which is you know you can't do like if you invest in a stock and it goes to sure. it loses someone, so you can't yeah. like sell it, but <laughs> right. you bought it and, and pull out. Um, and then they sued us, and then they won, which is like the most ridiculous thing. Yeah. So we were like hemorrhaging funds. We we're like, what is going on? You know, right? Because you know they they bribe the judges and everything, and it's like, oh, it's a foreigner. You know, um, Chinese people are not. I would say they're not very political, but anytime it's like. They can get really nationalistic sometimes mm. whenever they feel like a foreigner is like enroaching or upon us or whatever. So mm-hmm. that kind of messed things up a little bit, but um, culturally, socially, it was very fun. You know, people asked me pictures. I didn't even do anything. It was such a confidence <laughs> booster. You know, I had like, like feeling insecure. And I was like, it's not a thing. It's just like, ah, oh, come on, take your photos of me. <laughs> it was, uh, it was very fun.
0: So let's, let's uh, zoom forward to where I, I cut you off, which, which is the story of you're 16 years old and, and your dad gets one of those MIDI controller keyboards, like one of those yeah, little-
3: Yeah, it's like one of those tiny keyboards. It didn't have all the keys. It was cheap plastic, so you could hear like the plastic. But I loved it. I loved it so much. Um, So he bought it for himself, right? But then he's also, you know, my parents were like, you know, why don't you start lessons? You know, all these Asians, you know, they're like playing when it's not at age two. What are you doing, basically, is what they're saying. <laughs> and I was like, okay. No, they weren't that mean. But I was like, okay, fine. I'll, I'll do it to appease them. I had like no interest, you know? I didn't even like class music. I was listening to like- um. trap music and like rap music that kind of thing Oh, okay um i only knew like one piece i was like and uh, it's moonlight sonata that was the only piece i knew and i was like wow this this last part here the third movement it sounds really cool and uh uh, i know i definitely cannot play that but Mm -hmm. i want to try maybe like the first part you know because it also sounds it sounds really peaceful really nice and so they found a teacher you know she was like like fresh out of college or something you know like a young person i i go in they don't have like an actual place. It's in a garage, like, you know, like storage rooms and garages, like people keep their stuff. There's like a, it's like a musty place. And like, there's a upright there. Right. And I'm following her there. And uh, you know, there's also a bunch of, there's no privacy. Like, it's just like, it's just a a piano and some benches, you know, and there's a bunch of little kids and I'm 16, you know? um, And then these people are like seven, you know, eight. And it's kind of embarrassing, you know? I mean, of course I'm there to learn, like ultimately I'm there to learn, but it's a little bit like, like, damn, I'm old. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, and we told her, I told her, you know, I would love to learn Moonlight Sonata, you know, and I didn't know anything. You know, I don't know the names of the notes. I can't read. Uh,
0: You're not even that into piano. This is something your parents have told
3: No, I, I'm just doing it because I want to make them happy, yeah, you know. Yeah, I didn't, right. um, and I don't know. What happened with her that day? Like, if she ate something bad, or a boyfriend broke up <laughs> with her? Like, she was not feeling it. She put like she had the sheet music because oh, we. My mom told her, you know, he wants to learn this piece. She had the sheet music to it. She puts the sheet music on the on the stand. She's asked me to play it, and I'm trying to twin her like, I can't read. Like, <laughs> you got to start from like zero. She's all like, right. whatever, you can't read. And like, it's it is embarrassing. You know, there's like seven year old kids. You know, like little all kids, right. and they're all waiting their turn and i'm like i can't read and then long story short she said she said some really mean things and uh it is a part of like the china this is common in like chinese education system like i've been beat before by teachers like they beat students and you know they tough they love.
0: And... love kind of uh...
3: yeah yeah they, they do that stuff and uh so you know she was doing that stuff and i didn't like it so i just left i just marched back i was like you know screw you and she made a big deal out of uh out of reading sheet music that i can't read sheet music right
0: this was your first music lesson ever, right?
3: Yeah, first music so still
0: <laughs> And by the way, what were you doing thinking you could play Moon, Moonlight Sonata in your first your first lesson?
3: Well no, I mean that's all that's all I said. I was like one day I'd like to play this. You know, it's not like I can play this immediately. Right. Like, like I didn't, okay. I was like, I didn't know any other
4: classical okay. or
3: piano piece, which is like this is this sounds cool. And then yeah, so I marched back and I I had my keyboard and like technically i was i was homeschooled i guess it wasn't really homeschooled though it was like there was a textbook you could open it if you want you know that's that's pretty much what 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 went on um but that's not what my future high schools thought but you know that that's that's what went on and so i had a lot of time in the day i was um i was i was kind of your, your
0: services weren't required at the pizza parlor
3: no no i i mean no no and by that time it was like it wasn't really working out that much so we were we were doing like you know, my parents were doing odd jobs, like kind of make ends meet, okay. so just wow. because like the investors and their ties to the mafia, they had kind of like taken over the stuff so we couldn't like step foot in there anymore, which is really, really sad, really annoying, but wow. um, but yeah, so like i I had a lot of time in the day. I was upset, you know, I was thinking, and a lot of a lot of things to be upset about, you know, it's was like, and I know I didn't earn you know our original mansion, but I was born into that, so you kind of feel like you know, I had that that was mine. And then like, um, when we moved to Texas, we we were homeless for a little bit. So it's like, it's like, shit. We went from there to like right, nothing. I'm right, right. like, and right. I didn't notice, and this is why I love my dad so much. I didn't even know this at the time that we were homeless. Mm. I, he's like, we're gonna go on a road trip guys. Not knowing we just got evicted. <laughs> and wow. I was like, we'll go on a road trip. And like, he had like $20 in his pocket and that was it. And um, mm. we had an unpaid like rental car, right? Mm. That's all we had, right? He would take us. He's like, guys, we're gonna go to. We lived in Frisco, Texas. He's like, we're gonna go, we're gonna go to Houston. going to be an amazing road trip. I even vlogged it. <laughs> like that's how like clueless I was. And he's taking us to these restaurants, and I'm like, this is so good, Dad. But then I noticed he's not eating anything. I'm like, you you're not hungry? He's like, no, I already ate. I already ate. not knowing, you know, we don't have any money. He's just starving himself so we can eat. It was I thought the entire time was the road trip, you know, uh, we're using we're using the restroom at like random places every time, not knowing we don't have a place somehow you know we, we we like you know we somehow managed we borrowed you know
0: tremendous learning experience for you I, yeah I, a lot you know, of money yeah.
3: i i have so much respect for him. it's like yeah. so like, so, what
0: happened with the keyboard you, the, you go home from the piano lesson you have time on your hands so yeah. what do you start figuring it out by yourself right
3: Yeah, I I look up on YouTube, well, on Youku, which is like the Chinese YouTube. And there's like Synthesia videos, which is like, so she made sheet music. Me not knowing how to read sheet music like a big deal. So initially my goal was like, you know what, screw her. I'm going to learn how to play the piano without ever knowing how to read sheet music. Um, I had a lot of time on my hands. I was really upset and I was like, I'm not going to take any more BS. I'm just going to, I'm going to try. I'm going to pick something. I'm going to try to become really good at it. I want to prove her wrong. So I was spending on average like six hours a day. Average six hours, sometimes it was like eight, sometimes it was like four but I had nothing else to do. You know, I would just stay in my room. I had the keyboard and I put out these videos and I just, I pick like pieces, you know, like Mozart K545 or something. And I try to match my fingers because you can just match your fingers in there. Wow. And I did it over and over and over again. And I did it for like two weeks straight and I was getting a little bit better. You know, I could play, you know, like, uh, and I actually, I made a progress video. So I took it down because it got a lot of hate, but.
0: <laughs> but wait, um, were, you, were you starting to like it or were you still doing this because you're, parents wanted you to i mean where, where was the turning point where you sort of go eureka i actually kind of dig this this is not just uh, uh you know enforced from my parental uh declarations
3: yeah so um for the first like two weeks it was just like pure anger i was like i don't why is this you know this person speaking down to me i want to prove a wrong and then um someone around like the two-week mark i accidentally composed something and i was like holy crap this is actually kind of cool you know let me fool around with this more and I didn't know any theory. All I knew was that all pretty much all the pieces I was learning, and now I know the term. The term is homophony. There were homophonic pieces. So that means there was a clear melody, clear harmony. So usually like chord is harmony, the accompanying part. Melody is the part you remember, right? Every single one of them was like that, right? So I was like, okay, if the basic structure is that the left hand, it is not always the case, but just when I started, the left hand is doing the chords. The right mm-hmm. hand is doing the melody, right? Um, then I fooled around and then by accident, I played, I played a chord and then I had a melody going. I was like, this kind of sounds cool. And then I expanded on it. I was like, what if I did it with this Do one? you
0: have a keyboard in front of you right now?
3: I have a little keyboard. It's, it's can, a little- Can,
0: can we hear thing? it or can, is it plugged in or?
3: <laughs> sure, can I can share me. my-
0: Yeah, yeah, play what you're talking about. Tell so,
3: like, you um, how
0: you first uh, figured this out.
3: I'm just gonna share my sound. So uh, can you hear this?
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, let's yeah, play. yeah. So
3: like the very first thing that I ever composed was this. Some mistakes, so this is a very small keyboard, my fingers are a little big. But that was the very first thing. I was like, okay, that sounds kind of cool. I don't know what well,
0: I'm doing. Wait a second. I, I I still don't get this. You within two with like a few weeks, you could play that?
3: Well, yeah, this is it was just chords that were being hammered down, and I was spending like hours upon hours oh. just like at the keyboard.
0: Did you realize you were writing music?
3: I, at that moment I did, but the way I really did it is like I was learning existing pieces and I noticed that. There was a lot of patterns. I didn't know Roman analysis and much theory. I didn't really know any theory at that time, <laughs> but um, all I knew was like, okay, they're playing like the same chords over and over again. There's like a pattern to it. And so I you know, I didn't know even like the names of the chords, It was like, okay, there's this one, there's this one, there's this one, and they're alternating it. So I would try to like commit these to memory and then see like what works and what doesn't. And then you'd see, so now I know it's known as diatonicism, you know, like using the notes of the scale, right? took me a while to to understand that initially, but um, I would see like what notes are they using and what notes are they not using, right? Because if you're in the key of D minor, you typically you usually use right. the notes of the D minor scale, right. right? Um, but I didn't know that. I didn't know what like any of these scales were, so I was just like I was looking at their melodies and I was trying to memorize. Okay, they hit an A there. They had an F there. They hit a G. They hit a B flat. So I know okay, those are good notes that I can hit that would potentially match with one of these chords, and so I did that. Um, and then I also feel like a lot of people, even if they're not like musicians, they can they have a sense for like uh, like musical phrasing almost, right? Like that's why uh, you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to have a PhD in music theory to like be able to like sing along to a song or like, no, yeah. okay, this is the hook. This is, you know, they sure. can have like basic understanding of, of musical structure. You,
0: you know what's attractive. You know what sounds good. A good melody that, you, that appeals to you. You know, that kind of thing, even if you may not be a, a music genius. Yeah.
3: Right, absolutely, and so that's what I did, and then um, I started expanding. And for the very like my first like couple of pieces, the only chords I used were like basically one, four, five. So, like those were the only chords I used. Were right. very basic, I know, but those I was just alternating between that. I was like, oh, I can do like you know, I can do something like that, and then have something else. And then um, I also did that. I mean, it, it, I tried doing it with, like other keys. And then yeah, I most a lot of my earlier pieces are just that in terms of harmony. It's it's just that. And then uh, one day my brother came into my room. I have two younger brothers, and uh, he was like playing the keyboard. He doesn't know how to play either. Um, he didn't know how to play. And he he accidentally, I was showing him. I was like, oh, you can play this, right? And then he actually sh- it was an A minor chord. He actually shifted his finger down, so the A went to the G. So it was G C. It was like a C major chord. I was like, I was like, holy crap, you're a genius, Jacob what did you just do? And I was like, this is a new chord. This is like, I felt like if I was an artist, it's like, you just, you just gave me a new color to work with. If I was working with a green, yellow, and and red, (laughs) it's like, you just gave me purple. I was like, holy crap. I've never seen this before. And then I was like, oh my God, I can actually like try new chords. There's more chords than just these, these first few. Then I got hooked. And and then I I didn't really care for proving her wrong. I was like, this kind of gives me, you know, a lot of purpose, Which, which sounds, you know, silly and corny, but it wasn't a good time, but we were struggling financially. Um, parents, you know, fighting and all these, you know, outside things with like lawsuits and all this, right? Just a lot of things you don't want to think about, right? And so I would compose, and it was like a form of escapism. And so I became just immediately addicted. It was like, this is cool, you know. Some pieces I play, I was like, I'm not in Gina anymore. None of these like crappy circumstances. I'm like, nice. I'm in like some fantasy 1800s Versailles, you know? It's like it's it's cool. So. That's what got me hooked, and then that's that's yeah.
0: I mean, first of all, I feel like you owe that piano teacher, that mean piano teacher, <laughs> a great a great debt. I mean, you might do. <laughs> you might even have to take a commission from all your earnings for the rest of your life for so inspiring you to uh, to you know in a fuck you to you know learn how to <laughs> play the, the the piano like. Um, but secondly, I mean this this industriousness that you have when did you get to a point where you're you're doing stuff that you you were really proud of that you were like wow this sounds good how far in how long did it take you to get to that stage i know you say well i was doing it six hours a day whatever but this is not normal it's not usual for somebody to uh, you clearly have some kind of magical touch or facility that is faster than no really i can't you can't bring you know even if i take somebody and go off the street and go okay six hours a day play the piano they're not going to become you in, in a few months you know when did you feel like you'd written something really great and what was it
3: i maybe okay so the very first one like the one i just played you i i like that because i felt like it wasn't like completely bad i tried out a lot of different like things you know artistically like writing i'm i'm not good with words and poetry i mean like i didn't have an english club, like I had like a fourth grader's English <laughs> comprehension when I went to high school, so it wasn't that I couldn't really draw. Um, I can't sing, you know, and and like any of that stuff. So when I had that, I was like, "This is one thing I don't completely suck at. So let me just try and you know see what happens if I just go all in." You know, I have like that gambler, impulsive mentality I got from my dad. Let's just go all in with it. Um, I think my very first one where I actually liked, um, and I, I also I love video games, video game soundtracks. They were also like escapism for me because it was like you're in like the video game world, and I composed something that reminded me of like this this video game scene, and uh, that was like the very first one. I was like, I like this. I want to do this for a while. I don't know. What, if that? I'm gonna be- what was that? Play that for us. It was. Uh, it, it sounded like 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 this. like that i like that a lot it was inspired by some of the soundtrack that was a part of the video the video game is called assassin's Creed unity it takes place in uh, napoleonic france and so uh, it's like an open world game you can roam like mm. uh, 18th century paris and stuff it's really cool and uh, i was like wow okay i don't know what i'm gonna do with my life but i do want to keep making stuff like that because it makes me you know go into like the fantasy world you know it- it's like it's escapism so I say that was like the first one. Yeah,
0: there's there's something that we need to point out here, which is that um, you you have a work ethic. I mean, just because you were angry at the teacher doesn't necessarily fo- it doesn't necessarily follow that that means you're going to p- practice eight hours a day on a, on a piano. I mean, some people would just. Uh, you know, um, do drugs or throw something against the wall. Or, oh, I'm so you know, glad
3: I never went like any of that. Like my parents scared the shit out of me. with drugs.
0: It's a stereotype, both about Persians and, and Chinese folks that you know, there's this immigrant work ethic. But where does that come in you, from in you? Is it, would you say that both of your parents that way? Or is it, I mean, where does the kid who by himself decides to spend six hours a day on a piano come from?
3: Um... I want to say my dad. And I want to say that also, I think the unorthodox nature of the way that he he came to be is, I, I've also found that very inspiring. For example, and I know I sound by saying I'm his son, but like at the height of the restaurant, right? This was in Italy, we would have been like super successful. It was very, everything was authentic. And he learned all of this from like YouTube videos on his iPad. He would go to Starbucks and he'd stay there like all day long. He has a little notebook and there was like this, you know, there's like cooking apps and like, you know, just recipe that He would just take notes and then he would cook it and it was wonderful. I was like, and I'm a very picky eater. I, I don't like a lot of food. So I think just like seeing that,
0: um, you know, I was going to say, I never think of, you know, being an artist this way or say a composer, but you are taking an entrepreneurial approach to I mean, that's what you did right you 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 approached music like an entrepreneur like you sort of went how do I learn to do this what 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 could I do I mean it's very interesting so it makes sense that that comes from your father I mean and this has continued like you've just graduated college you got Mm -hmm. your degree in music at UC Berkeley by doing a four-year program in in only two years which is quite amazing you you. are famously self-taught now is there um was there now that you've graduated was there value in an expensive post-secondary education institution for a guy who seems oh. to be able to learn without one
3: i okay I'm, I'm, <laughs> i don't think so i i and this is why i still say i'm self-taught and i promise i'm not trying to be like cocky or anything i, I think if you were in there with the classroom and i'll, I'll tell you what so like um <laughs> So much of the and I'm kind of frustrated. And like I know I graduated in two years. Sometimes I wish I just spent a the semester there. I could have crammed everything in a semester because it's like very expensive. And I thankfully I, I got scholarships that covered like pretty much right. everything. So that I'm very grateful for that. But I still lost time, and time is irretrievable. So many classes were, were were very fluff. There were very rarely any classes that that taught much. Um, however, I will say that my experience being there, because that was my first time, I was living alone. I lived in a in a, a little room. Uh, a part of a larger house, and it was like sandwiched between fraternity houses that were partying all day long, and you know you couldn't go out. It smelled like alcohol, <laughs> but like you know it was like that environment. But um, I didn't really learn much from the actual lectures themselves. Um, Why not? They didn't really teach much, and like it was. It was it was kind of frustrating. I, I'm I don't think I'm a bad student. I I want to learn. You know I'm not there to party. I never attended a single party. I I never did any of that stuff. I was there. I was like I'm here to learn. Um, but I will say that I did learn a lot just Mike's ex- that during that period. And I, I, this is I know this is like sounds a bit weird, but like for example, like one time I was in class and you know, professor ranting out about like just useless stuff, right? Or stuff that I already know. It's like okay, this is just a big fat review, and then i look outside and we have like windows in a lot of these classrooms. You see like the leaves and like that leaves. And then I think about like, like an A half to mid to seventh chord. And I'm like, what if I did like that? And then i go to the practice room immediately and then I'd come up with something new and I was like, Oh crap, I could do that. So I don't know if you can give that credit to like the lecturer. Cause I I wasn't even, I was like, this is, this is boring. But my experience being there, that was also the, the, I did my first movie. I composed it while I was in school. It was a, it's, it's, it's a, feature film it's like an hour 40 ish it's still not out yet but um uh they're, they're still working in post but like working with the director and getting in the director's head like i'd uh, i'd watch his like instagram stories and stuff and he'd post like music to his instagram stories and i know it's okay he's probably using that piece because he likes it so i'm gonna steal that chord progression and implement in one of light leitmotifs and then i showed it to him he's like oh my god josh this is amazing like just that collaborative effort i learned a lot but very expensive it's it's
0: I... there's an old adage uh that i love uh which is uh, don't let school get in the way of your education um <laughs> and, and and you know I, there may be something to this where um you know being at university i wouldn't be the first person to say this obviously this is a you know famously the argument sometimes for liberal arts education for example is being being at, at post-secondary school is is not just about what you learn in the classroom, but the experience and and the, the social environment and the you know um, the, the life growth that happens and all that. So it probably there's there's probably a bunch of that that has been really really valuable uh, to you to give UC Berkeley that some props because if they're listening right now they're not going to be very happy. But but it leads me to ask you. I mean now that you're doing so well you're playing concert halls you're you've got a big following are there old school classical musicians or maybe some of those teachers or traditionalists who poo-poo you because you haven't had that formal education i mean is there oh do you, yeah do you ever no, feel no, a get, prejudice? A like <laughs> this guy this guy can't really play he's not trained in the right way you know
3: yeah I, I get that a lot especially with the internet you know and i'm sure you're you're familiar with this like like anyone can say anything, you know, they can hide behind their computer screens and everything. And it's like, so yeah, I, I get that a lot where it's like um, the elitists, I, I get hate from like both sides. So like, at least in like the music world, the classical music world, there's like the super traditional people that are like, you know, you can't do anything beyond, beyond like the Baroque era, you know, anything but it's sacrilegious. And then you have like the, the super modernist people that are like, if it's, if it's tonal it's old, it's antiquated. We need more experimentation. Like we need like John Cage 2.0, you know that? So I get hate from like both sides. <laughs> so I pissed both of them off. And, um, yeah, I, I've got a lot of that. And at first I was, you know, cause I wasn't used to social, like you, the whole social media falling thing. I started so- posting my first like actual post, um, uh, was February 19, I believe 2021. Um, and what?
0: uh really you have hundreds of thousands of followers
3: i mean i had a couple followers it was like my mom my dad my brother some distant cousin maybe some person at school i don't know but that was like the first time i actually posted something you know and my accounts were private and stuff so it wasn't even it was but like hang strange.
0: on a second you know you're not being totally truthful because even back in china as a teenager you were making vlogs i like, was i was making you've vlogs. always been you've you've had it you've known how to work social media from back then right i mean you...
3: i don't the thing is I, I did make vlogs and i tried very hard and um now some of the vlogs they get a little bit more views but at the height of my vlogging career let's say um it was maybe like a thousand subscribers and i'd get like a hundred views per video you know and i didn't i never did it for views i did it because like and for like now i could look back of like wow i we you know we went to the beach you know i could look back on it and i right. i liked it for like oh, memories.
0: yeah sure yeah
3: um, but I will say that I wasn't used to just getting like comments and getting so much interaction. You know, the most interaction I get from like back back then would be, you know, just and I, I was always very grateful, you know, like just like one or two people. It's like it's like this is a cool video, you know, sometimes we wouldn't get any comments, that's fine, you know. But then all of a sudden you get like a thousand. It's like, whoa, okay. And I was so dumb. I thought you had to respond to every single one. So if actually, if you look at my very first viral video, there's a response to like every, it was like 1300 <laughs> comments. <laughs> every single one of them was a response by me. And um, I do not know you're not supposed to do that, but I was just oh, so It's grateful. lovely
0: if you can do that, but it's, it becomes a little uh, um, unwieldy, right? At, at your level.
3: Absolutely. No, it, it does. And I, I was just like that night, I I'd never experienced it before. You know, I had all my notifications on for social media apps and my phone just kept ringing, ring, 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 ring and like i would go to like the notifications uh, tab and like i just refresh i'd keep refresh refresh five more comments 10 more comments oh, like like every second and i'm like my heart was palpitating i was like what is going on and it was the most amount of love i've ever gotten cuz like i i i you know my parents and i love my parents you know they're not like they're not su- no one in my family is like super into classical music you know they they support me and and, and i'm very thankful for that but When you hear, if you live in the same house as me and you're hearing me like playing the piano all day long, you kind of get annoyed. You you get desensitized from it. You know, it's like you hear it all the time. It's like, all right, Josh, stop it. We're trying to watch TV. You know, so like, you know, and that's understandable. I'm not trying to criticize them, Um, but it's the first time I was like, I hear like outsiders because I never really heard anyone else. You know, and I was actually kind of almost like doubting myself. But I was like, you know, what if I'm not as as good as an artist and all these things?
0: Why do you think that it has? you've caught fire in, in, um, in a positive way in, in social media. I mean, some of those TikTok um, posts of yours have over a million views or half a million views. What, what do you think it is? I mean, you're a guy playing classical music. It doesn't necessarily follow that you're going to get that kind of love. What do you suspect the reason is?
3: I think um, it's because everything that I play is always some sense original. Classical music is almost seen as like a dead art in the modern day. And I think that there's not a lot of us out there. And um, everything I play is somewhat original. So even if I'm playing, this comes from my like unorthodox learning method. It's like if I'm playing you like a Chopin nocturne, I'm not actually playing you the exact nocturne. I'm playing it to you by ear, what I heard, and I'm improvising over it. So like I'll play you like OP nine number two, which is an E flat, but I'll play it to you in A because I feel like it. I'm like, it's a totally different thing. I'll mix it with like List, Sleep, It's like you're a heretic. It's different. You're a
0: heretic. You shouldn't be allowed near a keyboard. How dare <laughs> you?
3: Yeah, so I, I think I think that has a big role with it. Um, I think that everything I do, even if it's playing existing pieces, it's like my original interpretation of it. To this day, even though I can read you sheet music, you know, so I'm not really following strictly what I what I set out to do originally. I can I know how to read sheet music. I can notate it. It takes me ages to sight read something, to actually play something like I still have to do every good boy does fine face or good boys do fine. Ace chief, like bass club. I still have to like recite the (laughs) mnemonic devices, which is really it's kind of embarrassing. But like, um, you
0: know, I mean, that's totally okay. You're breaking the rules, but you're doing it in a way that obviously appeals to people and and certainly sounds fantastic. I love you listening to your recordings. Who is your audience? Who are these hundreds of thousands of people that follow you?
3: Uh, well, I can I can check like demographics wise. It's a lot of young people. I have some older uh, people as well. Um,
0: are they in the states? Or are they around the world? Who are they?
3: Most are in the states. I actually have uh, a substantial portion in Iran, and I think it's because I played like uh, Golden Dreams and I played like um, uh, I'm gonna butcher the this but Sultana Galba. Come on, genius! Oh, oh you on the spot here. Can you can you hear this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like. one it's from a i think from a movie but it, it's very very catchy i love the chromatic line it has
0: yeah, these um, iranians know that you're they must know that you're half iranian right
3: i think it, yeah i think most can tell from my last name uh but uh yeah yeah so mostly states i have some european ones um it's it's cool though it's it's very 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 interesting the internet is a very interesting piece of technology because like this would have like never been possible like it's 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 very very interesting what do your
0: parents make of this uh, success you're having
3: well they you know they originally they were like the the stereotypical like you know we want you to become a doctor or a lawyer and uh, when i got even, accepted even though
0: they were you know enthusiastic about you playing piano but they didn't they didn't anticipate that would be a career i guess
3: yeah, no, they, they did it because, and I, I can understand that from a parent's perspective, you know, it's a very risky. Anything in the entertainment industry is very, very high risk, high reward, you know? Yeah, I, I so I was going to be a doctor and I was doing great, you know, I was studying like 10 hour days, you know, I was studying all these things, right? And But then the second I saw blood, it was just like, nah, I can't do this. I'm, I'm right. Creating. So I, I can't do that. So then I was like, okay, I like physics. Physics is actually cool. And I still like physics to this day, like theoretical physics. And I had to – that actually took some convincing because physics is not a doctor. I was like, well, if I get my PhD, technically I'll be a doctor. So I had to convince them for that. And when I applied to undergrad, I got accepted to UC Berkeley as a physics, potential physics major. All my uh-huh. essays were about physics. Okay. I, they, It's non-binding, but they ask you, what do you want to study? I said physics. And then um, a week before classes, I was like, you know what? I really like music, though. So I I switched to music, and I didn't tell them at first.
0: Oh, Um, wow.
3: And it was the the COVID era. So all the lectures were at home, online. I was like, crap. They could kind of hear. you know. They're like, oh, there's a lot of music classes. But like, you know. You're gonna enroll in any physics classes when you have your physics, you know, your STEM classes. I had to break it to them, like guys, you know, um, I kind of, I kind of did a one (laughs) eighty. Um, and so they were surprised. They've
0: got to be blown away by your now. Now they're good. Now they're good. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, look, we, you're on this program, and and you're you're on this program as a star of an instrument that you didn't know how to play six years ago. I mean, it's the whole story is. Um, is a remarkable one. I wanna, before we end off, I wanna make sure to have time to to ask you about your interest in in film scores and, and, and composition really beyond the piano. I actually wanna play a little bit of a piece called uh, Enemies to Lovers. This is something you've just put out this year, at least on Spotify. I don't know when you wrote it.
3: Yeah, February 22.
0: Let's listen to a bit of this. This is Joshua Keon Alampur and Enemies to Lovers. I mean, that that's you playing all the instruments right
3: yes I, I can't actually play the violin but it's uh yeah it's, it's through a dow it's uh um yeah that that is one of my most known pieces uh right in, now. in, in other
0: words you did that all by yourself is what i mean you did oh yeah
3: yeah yeah it's, um, it's all me and uh actually the second part right after a climax we had the piano it's it's sneaking in some of my other like the raindrop bolts is there <laughs> i don't know if you noticed but the raindrop vaults is hidden there alongside another piece your light stash. motif i mean my light motifs full circle. I, I love light motifs so much <laughs>
0: It's your well, Darth I, Vader theme. It comes in whenever, you, wherever we hear from you. Um, if your aspiration was to, to do film scores, it doesn't sound like you're very far off. Uh, you know, I mean, th- that sounds like an epic film score. Do you even have a sense right now? I feel like this kind of term is so overused, but I really feel like the world is your oyster when it comes to this <laughs> right now, you know, um, it's in front of you. Do you feel like you know where you want to go with this?
3: Yeah. I, I'm just going to go all in. I'm going to go all in. and um
0: All in I, in, which, in which direction? In the, the film scores?
3: Film scores and just continuing with my craft. I thought about this for a while. I know this is not for everybody, but I don't want to live like a stable life if that means that I'm not pursuing my passion. Mm-hmm. And I know that's very cliche. So I'd much rather be like broke, but I'm still composing um, as opposed to living a stable life but i'm doing something i i don't like so i'm gonna go all in
0: says the 21 year old in a fancy apartment that he's got now well no it wasn't (laughs) always like
3: this but i'm I'm very i'm very very thankful like it's it's actually incredible this this past year you know tiktok made my career no one knew about my music i'm like i'm talking to you like i'm extremely grateful everything's going so fast and it's it's very it's weird to take it all in it's it's very interesting feeling
0: are you gonna do concerts? Are you gonna tour and play? Is that- I would
3: love to. I would love to. I have terrible stage fright, but I gotta get rid of that. <laughs> and um, you know, if, if, even like the Lincoln Center performance, I was supposed to play. I was the only composer there, and so I played my own piece. And it was an early. It was a rhapsody I wrote. It was like seven minutes long, and um I completely forgot the middle it's in ternary form i completely forgot i had a middle section so the performance only ended up being like three and a half minutes long (laughs) and no and everyone was clapping because i still transitioned you know i made it work but my mom has a video my head is down i'm like ah shit i just left out an entire section uh but they couldn't tell because it's their first time here so but
0: well, you still you still have some fresh material for the next Lincoln Center gig. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's expanded on that three minute piece that he had. Done. Um, Joshua Kian alampur, your um, first of all, your energy uh, is infectious. i've I've seen this on the videos you make and uh, your your life space, you. as you call them. And I wondered if you'd like be like this in a, in an interview you are. It's really a, a joy to talk to you. You're full of, mirth and laughter and um i love the interaction with your younger brother sometimes in some of your videos it's so cute you guys are (laughs) a great team you got to integrate him into your stage somehow. i do
3: i miss him very much (laughs) yeah well thank you Um, thank you so much for your kind words
0: thanks so much for doing this we'll keep to following you i want to go out on some um music from you what would you like us to play as we go out
3: oh man Uh, um (laughs) that's that's hard um
0: from your spotify slash youtube slash tick canon what what should we choose
3: sure well return to versailles is is pretty nice the climax is is nice it's a piece i i i composed i was inspired by just the interior design of uh of the palace of versailles and um um have yeah. You to, it,
0: did you go to the Palace of Versailles?
3: No, I haven't. I, I'm <laughs> fake. I know, but I, I'd love to one day. <laughs>
0: well, that's okay. I mean, it was inspired by. Okay, so I mean that. Yes, that that becomes a new aspiration. You can take the soundtrack with you there. Um, we'll play that. We'll play that. And thank you again, man. What a, what a joy it is to talk to you. Congrats on how much has happened for you in in recent times and i i really do believe it's from all your hard work and and obviously your magical touch that you're um that you have uh, some nature and nurture both in there clearly for i believe
3: thank you thank you so much
0: stay in touch
3: absolutely absolutely thank you so much sir
0: thanks John. don't call me sir jian
3: jian okay i'm sorry I'm just <laughs> to i'll call
0: you sir though um <laughs> thank you brother talk to you,
3: thank you thank
0: bye-bye you. Sounds of Joshua Keon Alampur, another composition of his own. What a pleasure it was to talk to him. This is Rook, episode 266. Listen, my next guest is an author and an award winning psychotherapist specializing in PTSD, Shireen. Amani Ozadi was born in Tehran, raised in Sweden. She's been working with the victims of torture and war at the Refugee Support Center and Refugee Therapy Center in London, England, since the year 2000. She's just published a new book, her second, entitled Once Upon a Time in Uppsala the autobiographical story of her immigration to Sweden as a kid and the realities of being an immigrant. The book is having its Swedish launch on June 10th in Stockholm, so if you are in and around Sweden, be sure to attend it in a week or so. But first, right now, Shirin Amoni Ozari joins me from London today. Hello.
5: Hello, jean John, Good to be back.
0: Congratulations on your new book. I've really enjoyed reading this.
5: Thank you very much. Thank you. I didn't know you had read it, but thank you, yes.
0: <laughs> I'm not going to do an interview with you about a book without reading it, but, uh, but of course I've read it. I, I, and now I know all kinds of things about you, at least you as a kid, uh, that I didn't know before. Why, she didn't, why did you feel like this was the right time to write a book about your journey and life as an immigrant kid?
5: I think um, the way the politics is going, I think it's just, um, there was a need for it. I felt that it's becoming much harder to be a refugee, to be an immigrant, the system is being harsher. And I thought that it was a good time to have a voice uh, for those who do not want to voice um, their challenges in the system. Do not make a scene, be quiet, be grateful, for what you're given. Uh, It's a safe country, you're safe now, and um, I just wanted to say it can be very, very challenging for especially children and young people.
0: Let me get into the challenges, but what you're saying in terms of how it's more difficult now is counterintuitive. I mean, we we tend to think, I believe, that it's a more globalized world now, Uh, all the major cities in the world are very, you know, diverse and so it would be a lot easier to be an immigrant now than it would have been say 30 years ago and 30 years before that
5: no definitely not i think what i can see from working with refugees and asylum seekers is it's it's much much harder than it used to be and also i think the perception of how difficult it can be what they carry and there's nowhere that especially children and um, young people, can sort of express their feelings towards their losses, how much quicker than other children they have to grow up and mature in order to be a bridge between the motherland and the foster land, and and be a guide uh, to their parents and families uh, without having any guidance themselves, yes, you know, yes. you have to find out your way, your path into the new system, into the new country, the language—extremely challenging and, and very different language, very different culture—on your own.
0: Now let me come back to that. Let me come back to mm-hmm. whether it's more difficult now or not. But what you're saying mm-hmm. in terms of the challenges faced by immigrants. And especially by young people who are who are immigrants, you do this very well in the book. You do it by just telling simple little stories about what happened with you and your life and your little best friend and all of that. Um, that, but without hitting us over the head, you're you're really making some profound points about what it's like to be an immigrant. I'm gonna I'm gonna lead lead people through the book a little bit and, and through some of the points that you make, which I uh, through the stories you tell, which I, as I say, I quite enjoyed. A general question first. You speak of experiencing, and you begin the book by experiencing Sweden as a kid, and everything is different from the cold weather to the TV shows to, uh, to the way people are talking. Uh, were you upset at your family for immigrating from Iran?
5: I think um, I wasn't so much upset with my family. I knew that we had to leave, but I, I didn't want to leave when we came to Sweden and maybe that's something that many relate to when you come to a different country, it felt for me that it was, um, you were faced with the losses there. And then it wasn't a holiday. It wasn't as if, you know, we're going home one day and I lived truly lived with that hope. And I think I still do that one day I will go back, but, um, You faced the reality and the harshness of it when you had to adjust.
0: I should note that you left in the mid 80s and the precipitant was the idea that there's the iran iraq war happening you left with your mom and your little brother and the idea was that your dad would stay in iran and that you guys would sort of wait out the war and hope that it would end soon and it didn't um and of course we'll get into your your dad um, eventually joining you guys in sweden uh, that's the context for it. you talk about the The political structure in Sweden, and you say, I want to quote you in the book, you say, the democracy within politics, the democracy felt agonizing. The freedom of thought and speech felt torturous coming from a land where you're told what to think, what to believe, what to say, how to be. So you say it took a while before you would actually open up and even express opinions. And, and actually, it's such a profound point because that mirrors what is said about, uh, often now today, uh, new Iranian immigrants um, who, for example, don't want to get involved in ruffling political feathers, so to speak, uh, and who, as we've talked about, especially in the, la- in the recent months uh, with the uprising, etc., who don't have actual experience with doing democracy, so to speak. Can you speak about this... Uh, both in your memories as a kid, but also as a psychological disposition as a professional.
5: Yes, I think it was difficult, even as a child. We left Iran in the mid-80s, as you say, 85. And uh, what happened in schools, was you were uh, questioned at school in Iran whether your father would be drinking. Uh, Does he drink alcohol? You know, you had that um, investigation at school, even in Iran. So you had to be very careful what to say in school uh, in Sweden. Mm -hmm. So, and I I remember... um, many of us were scared of police officers, you know, even when they came to school to, to say that this is what we're doing about the traffic lights that would give us education in regards to it. We felt really, really scared thinking that, oh my God, you know, police officers that's just so different to life is like in Iran. So I think it did feel that we had to think twice. You had to learn about that that democracy. Mm. You had to learn, even in a class of few, you had to be able to learn. It's okay to give your opinion and you can agree to disagree. It's okay if I believe in God and the person sitting next to me doesn't. Mm. And if the other one has a religion that I don't believe in. But we can discuss it. We can talk about it. We don't have to convince each other.
0: But the word torturous, that idea that the freedom of thought and freedom of speech is felt torturous. uh, Mm. Why is that? Is it because of the intimidation of not knowing that you're allowed to do this. And I mean, it's such an interesting idea, right? It's like the whole reason you're leaving this country is because you're being told to paint within these lines and you want the freedom to paint beyond the lines. But once you get that freedom, you're intimidated by the the thought of doing that, right?
5: Absolutely. And I think torturous, yes, it was, it was. It felt that um, you hadn't been allowing yourself to think freely you've always been um said what to believe in so coming to a country where everybody was free to uh, to express themselves and to think freely that that did feel yes torturous absolutely or to think critically
0: um, that that being yes. that being lauded for thinking critically rather than punished for thinking critically right
5: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And at the age of 12, I remember that very clearly that it was it was very confusing just to be able to do that. And, and you don't start doing that at home so much. You start it at school and gradually you bring it in indirectly into the home environment and say that this is what I learned today. And it's OK. And I can say this and I can think this. And I thought that scenario or that opinion is OK. It sits well with me.
0: I love your relationship with. Uh, there's a Turkish immigrant girl in school named Turkon. Um, she's still your friend today, you say in the book. And 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 in the beginning, you guys don't speak each other's languages. You're speaking Persian, she's speaking Turkish, but you're united by this immigrant experience and that you, uh, you actually start to speak to each other in a nascent form of Swedish. You know? So you're learning to speak Swedish together um, and you're both these immigrants. This experience and this sense of relating to each other, I believe, is something that only immigrants can understand, that on some level... We relate to each other no matter where in the world we are from. Yes, can you speak to that?
5: Yes, absolutely. I think we were each other's savior. I think she, she, um, you know, just, just learning about life together was just phenomenal. Um, yes, she is still a sister to me. She was here at my book launch in London, and uh, she will probably be in Sweden too. She speaks Farsi fluently. And I understand Turkish because of her. Yes, and we, we formed a language to understand each other that just her and I do. Yes, everybody should have a friend like Turkun. She saved me in a way that she was my partner in crime. She was a sister to me, and, and we discovered Sweden together. We discovered a land of unknown and yes, we laugh about our experiences today, embarrassing experiences somehow, but but we can talk about that and we can laugh at those mm. today. And um not only did we discover Sweden together, but she had to understand my culture and I had to learn about her culture too, to understand where we're where we were coming from. Do you see what I'm saying? So so she had to understand why I think the way I do and do not understand the Swedish culture.
0: Mm. But but at the same time that, that commonality, I it really that part that you and your relationship with Turkin uh, r- reminded me of. And I've talked about this before, but when I first came to Canada, my best friends immediately were a Pakistani kid named Roy, a black kid who had come from the Caribbean named David, and, uh, and then we became family friends with this fam- uh, family who were um, Pakistani and, and German, and so Omar, and then a Greek kid named Aris, all of whom were recent immigrants um, in a city that was still predominantly at that point, a white city. And it wasn't my reflex now looking back on it to become friends immediately with the quote unquote Canadian kids, the kids who'd been here for generations. But I gravitated towards these new immigrants and they gravitated towards me, even though they weren't Iranian. Um, and so yeah. there's this yeah. similarity that you and Turkin are experiencing, even though, you're not as involved in her culture any more than you are in Swedish culture. You're learning about being Turkish and all of that, but you guys are united by this experience, yes?
5: Absolutely. And I think we just connected and linked and, and, and we we learned about Sweden together. We learned through a very tough way. It was challenging for both of us, but having each other meant a lot. I think it just made it easier somehow to have someone to understand it's so hard that it's challenging that, mm. that you're going through losses and and uh trying to make sense of the new world
0: sometimes it's comical there's a chapter in the book where you describe a scene in which you and and turkin your bestie see a swedish woman tanning um, and the, the woman has no clothes on and you two are both shocked uh, and the Swedish adults that you go to say say well this is not a big deal I mean this person is tanning that's what we do and on the other hand you kiss Turkin on the cheek in class at one point and that becomes a whole incident this scandalous incident so these cultural norms crashing against each other are part of of the immigrant othering uh, and obstacles of assimilation what did you learn from experiences like that and writing about them?
5: I'm glad you brought it up but Uh, yes, about that kiss on the cheek, it sort of felt that when we greet each other, we kiss, we give each other two kisses on each cheek. And I don't understand what the big deal is when exactly, as you say, the Swedish are very liberal when it comes to physical contact. And it just, it felt really, really strange in a way. But um, (laughs) culture crashes like that, you know, some I've written in the book and some I haven't, It made us understand the Swedish culture and um, the norms more and together. And obviously bringing that to the Swedish teacher who would probably guide us through this uh, outside the lesson. There wasn't anyone who would go, you know, we couldn't go to a lesson and say, you know, let's um, have a lesson in what Swedish culture is about. But outside lesson, you could bring up experiences like that and, and they would tell us a little bit about how it's done and how it's said and what to do and what not to do. And
0: You don't totally get comfortable with it, even when it's explained to you, yes, women can be nude here when they're tanning, it's not something that you and Turkin are going to start doing, right? I mean, it's as evidenced later on, when you talk about a camping trip and you're completely a fish out of water, you you don't understand the whole point of camping, which the Swedes are enjoying in the rain and, you know, in the dirt and everything. Um, So these things are very, um, they they almost become silos because you're you're trying to understand, but you're at the same time thinking, well, I'm not going to go take off my clothes and, and tan
5: no but I learned that this is the way it is and this is the way they enjoy themselves and I learned it through a very harsh way I just as a 12 year old you're very much conscious and and you don't want to embarrass yourself I did have my norms set so it was very much like this is who I am this is how things are for me and um that culture I live by and this is you so hmm. I didn't un- even understand why, what it meant. I still don't what he wanted from me, holding okay. hands and you're, going
0: to the cinema. Right, yeah, right. you're referencing a point where you go on a camping trip and a Swedish boy comes in the middle of the night to your tent and says, let's go skinny dipping. And you say yes. no, and you never understand why he, he ends up just going to another girl, <laughs> After, yes. as you explained. But uh, there, there are several times throughout the book describing your early years as immigrants in Sweden, that you chronicle how homesick you and your mother could be and could become and how, to, how out of place you could feel and how you pine to be back in Iran. It's an interesting paradox about immigration in a lot of cases. The idea is that you leave your home country to go to a better place and you acknowledge it's a better place. We are going to a better, a better place for our children, say Sweden, Canada, whatever. And sometimes the people of your new adopted country, as the Swedes were with you, believe you should be grateful to be there, you know, and, uh-huh. and you are, you uh-huh. are, you're, oh yes, uh, but at the same mm-hmm. time, you desperately miss the place that you're from and that you chose to leave. Explore, yeah. explore that paradox, if you will, because I'm sure this is something that you face all the time dealing with immig- um, immigrants and refugees in your work.
5: Yes, I have to say that it was very different for me personally. It was more like, I am an Iranian, I'm full of beautiful culture, we have a beautiful history, and I'm very proud of it. Even today, when I have my Swedish friends over from Sweden, they know that, you know, they text me and say, can you make some Zereshpolo like your mom used to do? So. For me, it was like you enter my culture, you learn about me and my culture. That's that's how you get to know me. So I was very much um like, yes, okay, this is your culture. I get that, I understand that, and I respect it. But for me, this is this is my culture. I'm you know, I've adapted to yours. You need to also learn when you enter my home that this is this is Iran to me. And, and they appreciated that. I wanted to also say that uh, this is who I am. And, and being Iranian is a, is a big part of me. It has always been, will always be.
0: Right, but I understand all of what you've just said. I appreciate it. But what I'm getting at is there is a paradox. It's understandable yeah. to me if a Canadian says, okay, you're an immigrant from Sri Lanka or, or Iran or Colombia, and you should be grateful to be here. You know, I, I, yeah. I, I mean, it sounds like an arrogant attitude, but I get it. We yeah, are, we are grateful. grateful. We came to Canada because, you know, my parents thought this is a better place for our kids to grow up. We're going to go to yeah. Canada. At the same time, there's this homesickness for the, for the, the country that, you know, we, we come from or, and, mm. and my parents, have you know, their whole life in Canada loved being Canadians, mm. but pined for the Iran that they, they had left behind. It's a confusing reality to carry with you in everyday life, Right.
5: Mm-hmm. absolutely homesickness i think it's been with me since 1985 and the fact that you should be grateful yes you hear that all the time you heard that all the time as a child and you hear it all the time the society even working with refugees today many of them are expected to be grateful and i think to a degree we are yes absolutely but we need to distinguish between the fact that are we grateful or are we carrying, you know, the guilt of having to be mm.
0: grateful? <laughs> yeah. Do,
5: do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's just that's something that I don't want to, you know, being owed the country right, for right, right. what I've been offered. Yes. I am grateful, but I don't want to owe you anything. Mm. Do you see what I'm saying? So I don't want to carry the guilt of having been um,
0: the burden yeah. of having to always bend to you, because you let yes. us into your country, so to speak, that is now our country as well. Especially as these countries become, even Sweden, uh, uh, having visited Stockholm, it's a, it's increasingly a diverse place. So, what it means to be Swedish is also uh, can be people who come from different places of the world who are now in Sweden are Swedish, right? So, um, yes. At one point, one of your neighbors. As a kid there in in Uppsala is moving out after she has a divorce. and you and and Turk and your friend are shocked that she doesn't have family members helping her. Again, this is a it's such a small little story, but it makes a really good point because it's a story that illustrates the intense family orientation of Iranians. Uh, that, I mean, could it would be unthinkable that this person is packing her stuff by herself. Where is your extended family and your cousins and your brothers and sisters and your mother? But also you make the point, and I think quite gracefully, that the Swedish woman does not necessarily see this as a big issue or as loneliness, but but a form of respect that Swedes Swedes have for privacy and being left to do their own thing. I don't expect, I don't want my family around me 24-7, So tell me about that if you can. Uh,
5: For me, the biggest shock was that, oh, my God, she's gone through a divorce. And she was, you know, what I learned from that experience was also that it's okay, You know, you can divorce. It doesn't have to be such hardship where in Iran it would be. I'm not sure how it is today, but it was at a time. So you would lose your children, you would lose your home, you would, and of course your family would be there to support you because it's so hard and you lose everything. So for me, it felt like, oh my God, here she is and, and she's going through such hard time and she doesn't have anyone. And also what I learned from that experience was also the fact that she said, you know, the love died. We didn't love each other anymore. So to me, it felt like, oh my God! Did you, you know, did you work at it? Did you do anything? <laughs> did you just are you just divorcing because, you know? So that was also a concept that I had to struggle with. Again, something that I had to learn. I remember that moment really clearly. That it felt, where's your mom? Where, you know, where are your siblings? What I
0: was trying to get in get yeah. get at with that is that we Iranians have have this intense family bond. The, and yes, and too, some yeah. sometimes it's a, an enforced family bond, but, you know, listen yes. to your parents, take care of them. They, the parents have to be around the kids. Everybody has to be involved in each other's <laughs> lives, et cetera. I believe that we're very proud of that. We like that. Oh, look at us. We're really good with, you know, we have close families but that we sometimes judge other cultures that aren't this way. I mean, uh, um, oh, look at these people. They're, they let their kids run around without even knowing what's going on in their lives or, or they're not mourning the way they should at a funeral or whatever it, it might be. And I thought what you were, m- maybe I'm wrong, but I thought the point that you were making in that, in that moment was that you and Turkin are kind of judging her. You're kind of going, well, where is this person's family? But for her um it's not a sign of disrespect or any lack of love for her family that they're not there because she's kind of going well they've got other things to do we respect each other's lives and you know um and and i just thought that was an interesting point that you were subtly making about not judging each other
5: yes 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 it's different perspectives It's, it's different culture and i think. That's Swedish for you. This is what Swedes do. They want to have their space. They want to do their own things. I mean, somebody falls um, on the street. My immediate action would be to go and say, can I help you stand up? Mm. The Swedish person who's fallen would look up to me and say, I'm quite capable of standing up myself. Thank you very
0: <laughs> Right, much. right. Erna,
5: that's the kind of attitude you would get. And I had to learn about that. Yes, that was one lesson. The lady who wants to uh you know divorce she wanted to see Had to pack the, she, her own things she didn't want anyone in the way she wanted to uh you know go through the process on her own and that was okay too for her right, uh, right. this was her way and and in that culture it's quite uh acceptable you don't have to as you say mourn it she didn't probably see it as a as a big loss and i learned that that was okay too
0: there's another memory sharing in in the book about a time you go camping this time with your mom um, or you guys go on a trip and, yes. and, and there's a Swedish girl who actually eventually becomes your friend who asks mm. you why you are in Sweden and says, I would never leave my homeland. And you, you tell her, well, the answer is complicated. And I mean, you're 12 years old and you're already exhausted at the prospect of having to explain this to everybody. you know. And this is part of the burden of the, of the immigrant, isn't it? Needing to explain why are you here, that question, even if it is asked in innocence.
5: Absolutely. And you had to deal with that. I had to, I think many of us had to deal with it. We had explain as much as you can and then just leave it because there's no point in saying to someone that um you know why you have to leave your home but also we many times we are faced in at school with questions like how many camels did your father own you, you know but then you had to to learn a way to to communicate with that question mm. like saying something like as many as um you know polar bears as as, as your dad has. Right, you know right, things right. like that. You just right. had to, you, you know, so that they would understand and get the, you you know, how crazy the concept of right, crazy right. of that question. You're saying your family
0: um, your family doesn't own camels? <laughs> <laughs> how dare you? We all I thought we all owned <laughs> camels back in the old uh, old country. <laughs> they weren't that rich. <laughs> right. The other thing is, I mean, we you know. That said, we also judge other people. We know this about Iranians. And there's an honest story you tell of your reaction when an Iraqi boy named Jalil joins your school. Now, you're only 12, but you see him as the enemy and you resent your brother for being nice to him. How, How do you feel about that? looking bow- back on it now, about the feelings you had about this Iraqi kid who you know, was another immigrant like you, Jaleel, who was in your school?
5: I'm grateful to that experience. I'm grateful I met him. Otherwise, I would have carried that hate, that false perception of uh, what I was carrying, I wouldn't have had um, any opportunity to explore what was going on inside me. I saw him as someone who had taken my family, my home, everything that I believed in and loved. I'm absolutely grateful. We did become friends. I'm not sure where he is now, but...
0: Do you feel some shame about the way that you reacted to him and treated him at first? No.
5: No, I don't. Uh, Thinking about it, at the time, I was quite um, sure about my feelings. And I was sure that these are the right feelings. Hmm. But then what my mom did,
0: you end up going home and you this Iraqi kid is in your home and your mom is entertaining his mom uh, for having tea yes. or something like that. And you're sort of shocked that your mom is allowing these Iraqis into the Iranian home and and then you, you sort of get after. But I don't know how I feel about that response when you say, uh, you know, these were the feelings I had. I mean, that would be uh, an excuse for any kind of racism. No, these are the feelings I had about... Jews, or the feelings I had about I me, mean, can't you know? I mean, the way you reacted I, to I, Jal, poor little Jalil was not fair, right?
5: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not ashamed of the feelings that I had because for me at that time they felt so real, mm. and I think it's important for me to highlight that because racism comes from a very Unaware, you know, people who are racist, they haven't had the opportunity to explore what I experienced and what I explored with my mom and what what I went through. Uh, So um, if I hadn't, Hmm. I wouldn't have known about my own feelings and how to handle it, how to carry it, how to package it. So I think that's important. Of course, looking back now, I feel grateful for having had the opportunity with Jalil to um, to go through it and understand where I was coming from, and thinking that my mom is right—he is also in the same situation as me. Yeah, yeah, um, quite. Literally. That learning process—you know—that yeah. that I'm grateful for.
0: Again, I mean, if there's if there's one sort of underlying feeling in the book, is it's. Uh, in terms of your exploration of being an immigrant. It's, it's the unity that we feel, as we talked about earlier, with other, other immigrants. There's a scene from your childhood where someone you call the big girl, there's this big Swedish girl that wants to beat you up. Um, you've, you've won this story contest in school and she said something sort of racist about, you know, how dare you come to my country and win this award or uh, this distinction. Uh, and so she's going to beat you up and she's bigger than you and she's intimidating you and you're soon joined in solidarity I don't know you're in a schoolyard or something right but you have other Iranian kids and then this gaggle of different immigrants come, and it's like a scene from a movie they all come around you to support you as she tries to intimidate you what what did you learn in that moment and from that story
5: That was such a beautiful moment. You know, it was just me thinking that I've owned this and earned this and I'm owning it. This moment is mine and you're not taking that away from me. And as a child, you don't understand, you know, probably now you would think that she's going through something, it's her own issues. But at the time, you wouldn't think like that. It was, no, this is mine. You're not taking that moment away from me. Even if you have to kill me. You know, right here and right now, I'll just die gracefully. <laughs> but this, it, this is mine. So having others just walking up, and I didn't realize until I felt that there are other children behind me. It was beautiful. It was a moment of Irani hasting. We're all Iranians, and we just, no matter what, we're standing, you know. Well,
0: it starts with the Iranians, but then the, the little Turkish kids and others come and yes, join you too, yes. right? Yes, uh,
5: yes, Absolutely. all stood there
0: which says that they they see you ultimately as one of them they as it's sort of the immigrants coming together and uh i thought that was a it was was quite a vivid and beautiful scene um
5: it was beautiful and it was great to have done that because we moved up to that school and i felt that i had already made friends and i knew the students from that school so so it it was beautiful it was beautiful
0: I guess it's about a year or two in that your, your dad finally joins you and um, you and your mom and your brother in Sweden. And it is bittersweet for you because you realize, as wonderful as, as it is to have your dad finally reuniting with you guys, that this de facto means you're likely not returning to Iran. Um, tell me about coming to terms with that
5: it was hard because we left with two suitcases that felt like we're going on holiday and then finally realizing that that's all from home that's all we can we can carry we can bring from home and going back to um, how close families are in iran how uh, grandparents and and uncles and it it was it, it was a proper goodbye it felt like this is it is coming now and we don't get to see them, which was the case with my maternal grandmother. And I never got to see her. But um it was fabulous. It was fantastic to see my dad, to be reunited with him, but that meant the end.
0: And you you've said earlier that you still feel like you're yeah. you you you're waiting to get to go back home to a certain extent. Yes.
5: yes every day.
0: It's a lovely um, little book. I, I hope uh, people check it out. Um, I'm excited for your launch next week in, uh, in Stockholm and on, on June 10th. For people who are listening in Sweden, I'll go out and see. Uh, can people come? Can the public come to your launch?
5: Yes, yes, yes. Where is people it? People can come. So this is in the English bookstore in Sadaman.
0: And she, before I wish I, you all could come. Yeah, I, I wish I could come to Stockholm to see your launch there. Before I let you go, you do dedicate this book to Massa Amini and Iranians who've been fighting for freedom in recent months. Um, why did you want to dedicate this to 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 this cause?
5: My heart goes out. I mean, working with refugee and asylum seekers, victims of war and torture, my heart goes out to everyone who... Um, like me i believe that there will be democracy one day in iran and they they work hard at it so um this is why i'm dedicating it to uh women life freedom movement and to massa amini who started this movement
0: thank you for the chat it's always nice to have you on the program and i and congratulations on your book
5: thank you very much Janjan. as always thank you
0: bye bye This is Rook, episode 266. My next guest is an Iranian scientist and researcher based in Ottawa, Canada, Dr. Nima Taafeshukh. He was born and raised in Tabriz. He moved to London, England to pursue his education in 2013, obtained his master's degree in biomedical immunology from the University of East London, and his doctorate in immunology research from Brunel University, London. He currently is a scientist cancer immunologist in Ottawa and he's just co-authored an article entitled Suppression of Academics and School Training in Iran during the Women Life Freedom Revolution. It has been published in the Biochemistry and Cell Biology Journal from Canadian Science Publishing and right now Dr. Nima Taifeshok joins me from Ottawa today. Hello
4: sir. Hi, thanks for having me here, Jan.
0: It's nice to have you on the program, Nima John. Uh, This is an interesting article. uh, It occurs to me, it's relatively common knowledge that the regime in Iran, at this point for the Iranian community at least, has been cracking down or combating any dissent and punishing those active against their rule. And that includes, of course, notably professors and students who've been involved in the uprising. But what was interesting to me about your article is you talk about this in a broader sense as a form of academic suppression in iran tell me the impetus to write this piece
4: well basically uh yeah and i can tell that we had like several reports out there you know talking about like the impulsion suppression of academics and students but we didn't have this like probably the adequate papers like out there, you know, just published in this, like a standard format for a journal with a quite detailed analysis on the suppression. So we did this. So basically it's, it wasn't like very briefly, I'll, I'll tell you this, that this was not like very, um, our team's first collaboration and um, write up. So we did like, if you remember it, we had like this brutal attack on students at Sharif university so it was last year october i think yeah. so we, we just like had this like uh, editorial uh letter like in very prestigious journal so like briefly we talked about how this like the movement started and how like the universities all over like 114, you know just uh, across all iran you know just uh, joined it and how you know how like they, they were all attacked right. brutally by this right police and security forces and even like open fire on them and also in that piece we just like focus on this like diversity and inclusion of like women in academia that, that for years they've been like fighting against this uh, social discrimination like uh, impose the state you know regulation like for their employment and even their admission to the university. That is so kind of ridiculous that how your appearance and the wear that you put your clothes on can just like affect your future and career aspirations. So that was the paper that basically we just, uh, you know, extended our hands to some scholars all around the world. So asked them to join in this movement and then, you know, condemn this statement, you know, uh, what has been done by the regime, I mean so uh, but in this paper as I said when you submit a paper to these like journals like a scientific journal you have to have like this standard format you have to have like abstract intro data analysis and discussion so that's what we did actually so at some point uh it was hard to get those data you know that these kind of data are classified as secret or top secret in Iran. so it was really hard for us to get our hands on those data so we we just collected that from uh, mainly from valid sources like human rights activists or union council of students of iran we also like generated these figures like bar graphs and stuff and we mainly talked about students and professors first section of the paper i'm talking about in the second section it's all about like the gas attacks to students in school so in the first section basically you know the numbers of the professor and students you know and the different provinces and the sentences that you know they got and went through that's you know the madness what i can tell you know like over like 700 students detained and uh if you're talking about like the professor the sentences that they got you know even like for just not being active in the like the protest itself but just being fired suspended forced the resignation like being prevention of the promotion and academic career but for the students it was like more uh, like apart from the suspension of expulsion it was imprisonment and torture, like for. Let me just slow you down a little bit. Uh, yeah. you said a lot there. Uh, um, I know you're
0: short on time, but let's let me just uh, try and make sure yeah. everybody can comprehend and consume everything you're saying. Uh, where wh- where I was getting that with the academic suppression is, like I say, we've on this program and in many programs talked about how, you know, a student who speaks out against the regime will get punished. We've seen that with professors we certainly seen it with students and i'm going to ask you about the gas tax in gas attacks in a moment but we think of that in some sort of a la carte way you know you do something bad and and then you're punished for it unfairly however you want to see it by this regime this idea of academic suppression feels much broader. And in your piece, you cite the Universal Declaration of Human Rights by the United Nations, and of course, Article 26, which says everyone has the right to education. Do you believe that young people are not experiencing the right to an education in Iran today?
4: definitely so they have like very severe struggles you know uh, when we're uh, because this is more kind of also like relevant to this gas attacks uh, you know everyone knows that we have like this religious groups in iran like a uh, religious fanatics that they're against the education especially for women uh so i know that it you know they've been like at the front line you know just standing before the crowd and like showed impressive audacity, but this is actually happening. So we have still this, you know, like mentality in in some of these groups in Iran. That's the reason, you know, we had like this horrible like gas attacks, which was, as I said, combined with their impressive role, which they play a really key role in this, you know, um, protests revolutionary movement yes there is that's what i can tell so um and we can you know go deep into the slow gas attacks if you're interested but um also like important thing i can mention here is like how we reached out to large numbers of like scholars around the world from 18 countries like 65 institutions even some of them were like shocked at some point because they didn't know most of them know what's going on in iran but some of them were deeply shocked and uh, they expressed their solidarity. You know, went through the paper, provided their very valuable feedbacks on the paper. This was quite impressive what we did.
0: Yes, I was going to ask you about that. So, but just a last point on the on the right to an education. It just it's a little bit I find counterintuitive in the in the sense that one of the things that the regime in Iran trumpets in the, in the midst of all the diversity of opinions that people have about this regime almost all of them negative of course especially in the Iranian diaspora but is that you know we've at least we've been good for education uh, you know that 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 in the last 45 years there's more people who are literate than they have been before and and so talking about an assault on the actual right to an education is is quite outstanding given the way the government of Iran portrays um, what they do.
4: Yeah, it is. So definitely. So uh, yeah, we had this, uh, as I said, uh, we have this mentality in in some groups in Iran. So, and also like what happens, you know, if, yeah, we have like more girls, like I think over 50% of the girls are graduated. What's the future? What's the hope that they have inside Iran? What's their, you know, employment like? So uh, we have like so many struggles. So, and, uh, you know, fundamentally, you know, corrupted. What did you guys make of, I mean, the, the gas attacks, these
0: poisonings of young students, um, uh, particularly girls and, and young women in schools, it w- it was just so barbaric, so shocking that uh, it, I mean, even for, uh, for Iranians who are used to hearing shocking news coming out of Iran, this was sort of next level stuff. What are we to make of this? What do you guys make of this? This is not just firing professors or detaining students. What do you make of these gas attacks on students in recent months?
4: Yeah, as you said, this is very sad. We are talking about like the school girls, like in high school, even like the primary school, we had those attacks. As I said, those brave, even kids, high school students, they chose to not back down and piling up pressure on the regime. I think that's that's, that's the main reason. But if you if you look at the whole scenario, that's so ridiculous as well. Okay, they say that like, first of all, we have like this um, 13,000 students, over 13,000 students that have fallen ill due to these toxic gas attacks so and like over 300 schools like nearly all provinces in iran so this shows that it is really coordinated and highly organized attack but what they do in this scenario they say that okay like first of all that's why i'm saying like it's like a silly joke uh they say okay they first of all they cover up the gravity and they said okay like they have like very contradictory narratives you know their stress enemy conspiracy and things like that but we have this even like when these hospitals go to you know hosp- like when when these students go to hospital they're prevented from this medical care i don't know what's the word for it <laughs> i mean I, I, we can't really put it in a word in a word i think so and then uh, you know even like some toxicology test has been done for some of these students so and but they stopped from publishing it these victims like distressed family come out like peacefully you know they want to protest what they do what they face you know just violently just like attacking them and then right. uh this is what is happening but and the last part I wanted just to mention sorry uh I'm, I'm a cook because you know as you said I'm short in time the last part they said okay we just like arrested these people aspect and then allegedly you know involvement you know in, in these you know attacks but when you go and look at those people you find like journalists among them so that you know in the first place that they basically reported all about this like gas attacks so this is what makes it really horrible, I think, yeah.
0: I appreciate the piece you've written and I appreciate the, the work you're doing. Thank you so much for joining us today, Nima. Thanks, Ian. Bye-bye. Bye. Dr. Nima Tafeshuk joining us from Ottawa today. And that is full time for Rook for today. Remember, for all things Rook related, head to our website, rookmedia.com, where you can quite literally see all of our episodes, Our entire back catalog, all of the guests we've had on the show, all of the different Rook Media programming, the funnies, the videos, the moments. It's all there. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together. The Rook Media team, talented Anahita, Super Parisa, Smart Pega, Savvy Roham, Bearded Omid. Thank you to all the people who support us and our sponsors. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you've not done so already and become a Rook member on our Patreon page. Find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi Mizumashi.